Hello and welcome to episode one of the Creighton Crowbar spin-off miniatures podcast. By the time you listen to this, this podcast will have a name. <laughs> <laughs> We've not thought about it yet. We, well, we thought about it, but well, yeah, badly. <laughs> badly. We thought about it badly. We don't have a name yet. By the time you listen to this, we will. So you, in a way, know more about this than we do, um, which is probably going to be a theme that continues as we go. Uh, my name is is Chris Thurston, and I am joined by Tom Senior. Good day. Uh, if you are are listening to this for the, for, you know, and you've never listened to the, the Crate and Crowbar, we are two people who regularly do a PC gaming podcast called the Crate and Crowbar. And a couple of years into doing that, we decided to spin off to do a monthly podcast about miniatures gaming. Because we got mad back into it. And now <laughs> exactly. It's too deep to row back. We have to do something to justify our obsession. <laughs> Indeed. As sometimes happens to, uh, men at the beginning of their 30th decade, uh, we were suddenly gripped by the urge to collect paint and fight with tiny plastic people. And as a result, we've decided to try and make something of this as we once did with our computer games hobby. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what we do. By, uh, by recording our, 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 our thoughts and feelings and progress with it. But because this is the first episode and we're kind of figuring out where we're going to go with this, something I thought would be a good idea to start off with is talking about that process of how we ended up getting back into this thing. Because uh, you and I, we, we both work on PC Gamer magazine website. We both have done for a long time and seemingly there's a sort of eerie serendipity of us both falling back into wargaming and miniatures stuff mm. are basically exactly the same time but as far as i could tell completely unrelated to one mysterious another. what happened so uh, there was some sort of shift in the force that kind of dragged us back <laughs> into it it was very very strange because i think i started about march 2016 mm. um i just had a just a random urge to do something that had nothing to do with screens like uh working on the internet all the time and just looking at you know text and screens all day i was like oh, i, I want to do something with my hands and instead of like making a chair and becoming a you know productive human being and you know all those kind of useful skills i decided to paint tiny tiny warriors instead uh, and it was partly because i seen that warhammer had been rebooted and was i started checking it out because i was curious about that and then saw that the, the starter box was full of really, really good models. And I've always been, you know, drawn to the models, the quality of the models and the design of them. Uh, and I've always loved painting them. So that was really, it was a hobby draw rather than a gaming draw. So there's plenty of game, gaming in my life already. Um, and then once I started painting them, gluing them together, like actually had a few games. It turns out to be actually really quite interesting as a game. Mm. Um, maybe it's, I'm not sure how good it is as a truly competitive game yet because that's not really how we've played it but so far in terms of delivering twists and turns and stories and um ongoing campaign it's it's been excellent and surprisingly just very easy to put some models down and roll some dice and just get something out of it without having to learn a huge amount and you know spend a lot of time sinking into it so it's, it's just been a nice gradual process of like like the crab being lowered into the boiling water that <laughs> doesn't it doesn't realize until it's too late you got yourself a bisque. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's what happened to me. I got bisked. So it's, so I guess even the even further back background is we were both quite into Games Workshop stuff when we were teenagers. Yeah. And I am, I'm convinced that they must know that this is their market for, mm. for, for Warhammer and related things is that there are young men who hit a certain point in puberty where that's, it's no longer something that you do. Mm. Um, and then you lose those people for 13 years or however long it takes for them to then become of come of an age where you have a little bit of disposable income and time 
and uh, ideally an understanding partner, which has <laughs> definitely been a common factor. That's true. Um, and suddenly it all comes flooding back, like the desire to... Yeah, I think it's the point in my life where I've, I've already crossed the kind of fuck it event horizon. <laughs> where I just thought, That's what it takes. I don't care enough about what anyone thinks about me anymore, which is a, an interesting part of growing up. That it has, is, yeah. has kind of um, allowed me to uh, just do like the things I like without, you know feeling any quick yeah i mean it's maybe even worth con- you know confronting the elephant in the room here which is the profound shame factor <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is completely incorrect i think now but it's mm. funny because like so my insight on this was um x-wing was the thing that drew me back in and the reason x-wing drew me back in is well i mean so i say this now but like now at this point in my life now that i, I play x-wing you know competitively and i take it quite seriously and i you know play in clubs in bristol and the rest of it i have made a pretty vast investment in that game from mm. my extensive collection of tiny spaceships to um to the the cost of going to events and paying for tickets and, and the rest of it and it's now just a huge hobby um when i got into it it was appealing to me because uh, in addition to being a star wars thing which is something i've always loved it was pre-painted models you know a squadron in that game might have two or three models in it the that on paper the investment is pretty low compared to like what i was used to in terms of what i always thought of as a miniatures war game where you're looking at hundreds of expensive models and the the painting and the hobby side which at that time i thought i don't have time for yeah and so i got into x-wing and then that just ballooned and ballooned and ballooned but even when at the height of being into x-wing i was like but i'm not into warhammer and then for me, it was June last year and the release of the new uh, Warhammer Quest, which we've been playing, Silver yeah. Tower, which um, is a it fit a uh, that uh, slid into a, a a niche that I was you know looking to fill, which was that I wanted to get a kind of a dungeon adventure board game because we mm-hmm. play a lot of board games, and I you know I want and I wanted one that didn't have a GM that where all the players could kind of cooperate evenly with some kind of AI, not AI, because it's not a computer game, but you know what I mean? Some kind of, um, you know, automated baddies. So you could all, you know, have, have fun at the same level without needing one player to be the adversary. And, uh, it was that, and the models are amazing because as I mentioned, we'll go back to games workshops, model creation game has gone up and up and up. It's kind mm. of compared to where it used to be. Amazing. It used to be good. And now it's just gotten better and better and better. The models were really attractive. And then something clicked in my head where even though that's a box with about 50 models in it and they're pretty complicated, I realized that like, I might, I actually want to paint these. Like I tried my hand at a few X-Wing repaints and then I was like, I don't want to, I think I, I think I want to do this. I think I want to embark on this challenge of painting all this stuff. And as soon as I started to do that, I realized that, uh, painting particularly, was something that I had really missed without realizing it. Yeah, I think you might have definitely. found the same thing. Absolutely, it's been a, a kind of haven, um, a real just. It's such a relaxing thing to do for me. I know it's different for different people, but for me, it's just putting paint on it and seeing it gradually come to life is just quite therapeutic, almost. Um, mm. And so, just deeply wonderful way to escape for a while. Uh, it, it just to focus on one thing with no distractions like it's it's a real pleasure yeah and it's something that i wasn't getting from any other yeah any other hobby like um you know being into video games and competitive video games there was no sort of sense of that and like i didn't realize that there was a whole side of my um int- like my kind of abilities as a human being that just wasn't being used mm. because like painting was my the main thrust of it when i was a teenager like i, I didn't play very often if at all partly because I could never finish an army because I'd always get distracted and paint something else. Yeah. 
Um, but when I, you know, at the, at the level of like Salisbury 2000 era games workshop painting competition, mm. I could win them. So that's kind of, that was my like, you know, point of pride in it. And that was the thing that I was quote unquote good at for yeah. a teenager. And, and I think that's important. I think it's important to feel that kind of like, oh, this is something I can do. And this is something that, you know, I can kind of show people and, you know, I mean, you know, God knows we're both in the situation now of, of having one of those, one of that, one of those criteria of understanding partner is partner that doesn't mind having you walk up to them and go, look at this. I painted <laughs> a tiny man again. It's I happened did, again. I did a dragon. It's happened 60 times this month, but you know. Yes, dear. That's very nice. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's a, I think a psychologically good thing to have in your, in your back pocket, just in kind of, mm. in terms of like a, a reserve of kind of like something, you know, you like, I think that's what a hobby is ultimately is like a sort of set of capabilities that you can kind of flex to make yourself feel good yeah. <laughs> about things and painting like nothing else I was doing in my life used the same parts of my brain mm. that painting a tiny man uses <laughs> basically. Yeah. It's a strange activity. Um, it's, I mean, it's strange how powerful it is, I think. Mm. Um, and it's also, there's a, it lets you be creative without the, you know, starting from scratch, the hard yeah. kind of psychological barrier that comes from doing a drawing or creating a painting from scratch. You've got the outlines, you've got the model, and it's kind of, you can start just by colouring it in. And then there are just so many kind of uh, grades of detail you can go into if you choose to, um, but that you can get them looking good very quickly anyway, mm. with just like a base coat wash, maybe a highlight, and it looks good already. So it's, it's very forgiving as a piece of creative, uh, you know, exercise doesn't punish you by like if you draw something and it's bad it's, it's immediately bad, yeah. bad and it's just been a bad experience from start to finish because <laughs> you've invested time in something uh, whereas um with warhammer painting miniatures uh it's rewarding very quickly with very low amount of effort which is a testament to the skill of the model designers because obviously it's a, something that they bear in mind when they're looking at um creating a new faction like how what kind of skill levels gonna is it gonna take to paint this stuff and different armies vary immensely like you could just dip a load of skaven like really quickly if you wanted to mm. but if you wanted to do as each army which you collect chris then it's going to take a bit more effort so you can you can choose the level of kind of investment and difficulty that you choose your difficulty level basically yeah yeah because i mean coloring in sorry we're putting it like mm. you know it, from our other side of our lives as, as in working in media and publishing you know there was a wave of uh like adult coloring books and i definitely don't mean adult coloring books because that would be something you know, i mean as in yes. you know pictures of flowers and things for grown-ups to color in mm -hmm. and it was it was sold as a kind of a mindfulness exercise and maybe it's a little bit faddish and you know part of a kind of self-care kind of thing but i genuinely believe like if, if you are a, a skeptical adult wondering why two grown men would suddenly find themselves sinking deep back into collecting and painting tiny people um one of the reasons for it i think is actually very similar to why those coloring books suddenly took off mm -hmm. and it was because it is that kind of, um, you know, you're right that it is sort of like creativity, but without the the hardest thing of creating something from nothing. Yes. And is therefore incredibly satisfying, but still has the kind of the upper level of, of expertise that you can invest in it. And like now for me going and looking through the pages of the White Dwarf magazine or just yeah. on the internet and seeing the best painting gives me that kind of the, the satisfying but daunting sense of how far i have to go and yeah, everything yeah. else and now you know if, now it feels like something that i plan to always do because i didn't realize how much i missed the peace of mind that comes with sitting and just painting stuff mm. for a day and the sense of satisfaction that comes with finishing stuff and then the thing that follows that which is the game where 
you know, we'll get more into this, but like, you know, when you and I gather around a table to play, both of our armies are painted to a decent standard and look good facing each other. Yeah. And there's, that's an experience that doesn't really get replicated in any other format I can think of, mm. right? You don't get that in a video game because you're playing with someone else's pieces. Yeah. You know, you, you don't even get that in, in a, in a pre-painted miniatures game or a board game because you're playing with someone else's pieces. It's kind of a performance aspect to it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of showing off as well as a, um, when you're putting down your models, like the fir- first thing the other person does is kind of look at them and see, uh, kind of what you creatively live as a person, how you've chosen to express yourself through those models. Mm. And so it, it, that like, I feel a sense of pride attached to those models because they do represent me in that way. Yeah. Whereas with ordinary game pieces, that just isn't the case because you just haven't, they're not a, a, an avatar for you in any way. Yeah. And there's that sense of like, uh, every time we, you know, meet again to put those models down, there's something new. We've each added something yeah, new. And there's a sort of, I mean, we get into all of the different aspects of this as we go on. And, and I guess one of the things we'd like to do with this podcast is talk about the stuff we've been working on and, yeah, and sure. kind of how it's changing and, and so on and reacting to new stuff as it comes out and, and all the rest of it. But it's all intent. It's all sort of intricately tied in. It's not like, you know, even if we, even if we go on to think about discussions in terms of storylines and painting and playing, they are all intricately linked with one another like yeah. each thing sort of feeds into everything else and it's yeah it's gratifying in a way that i i, I certainly haven't felt from other kinds of gaming and, and hobby over the last couple of years mm. and i don't think that's just getting a bit burnt out in video games i think that's because there's something being offered here that you don't find in many other contexts yeah it's, it's straight, amazing how many kind of facets there are to it um and you're right it does kind of create a different type of game and it's i don't know it doesn't feel like a game to me in in the way that video games feel like games it doesn't feel competitive in the same way that no competitive games are it's it's a kind of strange mix of collaborative storytelling the way we play it anyway obviously you can play it competitively um kind of performance art and uh good like very satisfying me time yeah all rolled into the same activity yeah i definitely agree with you on the on the quality of time like something that started to weigh on me i think as time went on with video games mm. i started to feel the value of that time less like i would value the time working in games like i would value the time if it was something i was working on mm. if it was something that i could talk about on the podcast on the creating crowbar because then someone else is going to get benefit out of it yeah um but if it was like just for me there was some sort of creeping sense of like, what am I actually getting out of this? Like, what is this? What is my third game of Dota two of the evening going to give me as a human being? Mm. Whereas, you know, from, you know, it took me the better part of three months to paint the bulk of that, uh, silver tower box. And I didn't let us play the game until I painted enough that we could play. Yeah. Um, cause I don't like the sight of gray models on a board. I want everything to be painted. Yeah. And that was, it has to have been pushing a hundred hours of work mm. over the three months. But I f- feel like ev- even though in the grand scheme of things, like in the final accounting of the time <laughs> I've spent in my life, mm. there was a lot of times sat in the conservatory painting tiny men that ultimately probably won't change very much. But I really value that that's how I spent my summer. I don't know if that sounds stupid or not, but like if I had spent that time beating a long video game, I probably wouldn't have felt as comfortable that I could account for it in the same way. Yeah, I understand what you mean. 
I think it's because it just feels like a more productive activity. But we, it might be because we've been a bit decent desensitized to games throughout you know doing it for mm. six seven years or whatever or, or that you know doing games for this many years uh, video games for this many years has meant that our sense of what valuable use of time is is so <laughs> yeah, is so skewed now <laughs> that anything yeah. that produces a physical result it's like, oh my god this is amazing even if it's just a, a nicely detailed minotaur mm. is like you might as well have just gone and got a second degree <laughs> relative to this <laughs> Playing through Mass Effect again or something. Yeah, I mean, I do get a lot out of games, especially like single player games still. Mm. Um, but they increasingly feel like a, a pastime rather than a, a constructive hobby. Um, yeah. And I think it, it wouldn't be necessarily the case that Warhammer would fill that hole if people around me weren't into it. So I've got, um, I play games with you, Chris, and I've got my friend Jim who I play games with. He's collecting some fleshy eater courts and you're collecting each. And we're all seeing like, you see all this different, personalities of this amazing world that games workshop have kind of created and then destroyed and then made again last year <laughs> um and yeah i don't know it's interesting it doesn't feel like a pastime like it, it feels like it's building to real social events like things yeah. that, are me- that are meaningful to me in a way that games can't but before we introduce aos and kind of how yeah, it works sure. and and where we fit into it so you know if so age of sigmar is the rebooted warhammer fantasy and when it was um released by all accounts it was very controversial because they took the old warhammer fantasy world which is was very well loved that is the world you know if you played total war warhammer or if you played mordheim back in the day or if you played vermintide on pc or or console recently like the vast majority of warhammer fantasy stories well all of them were set in in the old world and still are pretty much and the decision was made not just to end that world and not just to reboot fantasy because by all account, you know, fantasy was a very technical game. It was more of a medieval warfare game in, in a lot of ways than like a skirmish game or, or a kind of closer to low fantasy than high fantasy in a bunch of ways, despite having very fantastical elements. Yeah. Um, and set in a relatively grounded, relatively grounded, I'm talking about relative to Age of Sigma, yeah. grounded universe that was modeled on aspects of the Holy Roman Empire, um, Arthurian myth, Vikings and even though there are wizards and monsters and things. Celtic stuff. Yeah. Well. Celtic mythology, like yeah. a sort of a mishmash of European mm. mythology and folklore. Um, but with a sort of a kind of quite a grounded geopolitics mm. and, you know, quite detailed low fantasy sense to its cities and its peoples and so on. Yeah. Uh, and that world ended literally blew the fuck up. It blew the fuck up. Um, at that, and it ended, um, with the victory of, of chaos, the kind of these, for, this force from, you know, force basically represents aspects of the human psyche or the mortal psyche, I guess. Um, and, but what they didn't do was then start it with whatever the world that comes next. They almost fast forwarded infinite time to the apocalypse after that one. So the, the background to Age of Sigmar when it was launched is that all that was left of the old world was the human god Sigmar, who is basically a big gold man clinging to what remained of, of that previous world, like literally its core. Yeah. And basically, uh, long, long story short, makes friends of the dragon, um, discovers that there are eight realms and the things that were the, the, what were previously the winds of magic, which are basically the elements in old Warhammer had now become places. <coughs> so where you previously have had the wind of fire, which would be fire magic, you now have a realm of fire, which is a fiery place. 
And likewise, life and metal and death and beast and beasts. The best of all the elements. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and then there was a whole new setting that they never used, which was the sort of this golden age of settling those places and rebuilding civilization. And then that ended as well. And then the age of Sigmar is called what it is because that's the point at which, um, the forces of good, namely the Stormcast Eternals, who are immortal, golden, Rorya dudes, mm. um, reinvade against, reinvade the realms to take them back from chaos. And when the game launched, that stuff was extremely, that was basically it as far as story went. The, unlike the old setting, there was no real sense of geography. No. Because the realms are unfathomably large and time passes differently in each of and them. Crazy. Like, yeah. Upside down waterfalls, just, you know, Leviathan sized creatures that, you know, you could have a fight on. It's like that kind of level of madness. Yeah. Like a big space dragon infinitely blowing fire, a molten lake of silver. Yeah. Forever. Like, yeah, very, like extremely high fantasy Hmm. from a grounded low fantasy. And that in the age of Game of Thrones as well, as as the rest of culture, uh, pop culture comes around to the idea of, um, sort of nuanced low fantasy games workshop fucking just went for it in the opposite the total opposite direction yeah um which i think is a very interesting call mm. um they could have so easily actually given that game of thrones has become so popular ridden that train they could have done yeah very very easily instead they they have just it was crazy mad attempts to bring back warhammer fantasy really i mean they've they've got Warhammer forty thousand, which is great and it's its own kind of quite technical game um uh and Warhammer was kind of like that, but not as popular. So mm. it makes sense for them to go for a completely different flavor. Yeah. It's just how far they went was what was surprising. Mm. And also moving to round bases, which infuriated a lot of people. Mm. But that was the thing, right? So they seem to, they, I mean, by all accounts, like you and I both got into Age of Sigmar about a year in. Yeah. Which is after the total fury. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the rage. Like, and so, you know, I think they managed to make a decision that I think you and I both like, but ultimately pissed off about everybody. And so it pissed off um, the fantasy players because it was a move towards a, a much simpler game, which we'll probably get around to, but also a very different setting and to round bases and to a sort of skirmishier style of play, which is a lot more like Warhammer 40,000. Mm. But for the 40,000 players and the more dedicated competitive fantasy players, it was so simple and so straightforward that it wasn't for them either. Warhammer 40,000 in its current state is an extremely complicated game. Um, I would argue too, too much so. Mm. Um, and Age of Sigma was very simple. And also, you know, from a sort of smart slash cynical point of view, um, y- you know, people say this a lot, but there was the, um, the assumption that the Stormcast, the new faction, this, these sort of golden immortal warriors that are really predominantly, I would say, modeled off, modeled after things like Persian immortals from history, like the, the face masks mm. and the gold masks and everything else seems to echo that. Um, the, you know, the, the first response to them for most people was, oh, those are fantasy space marines. And that makes sense because I think they filled the need that Warhammer Fantasy always had, which was for a kind of easy to paint accessible starter force. Yeah. Cause you think about like, you know, people are drawn to collecting the good guys in any setting. Mm. Um, you know, Warhammer 40k has always offered space marines, which you can paint any color you like and they can be yours. They're customizable. They're, they don't have faces that, you know, they're the big, they're in big armor that's quite easy to paint. They're kind of, you know, 
a good entry point as well as being powerful and interesting. Yeah. Whereas fantasy never had that, right? Like we, you know, if you collect, you know, if you want to collect empire, if you want to collect empire back in the day and have your human army, you better get fucking used to painting doublets and pantaloons and a lot of them as well. A lot of tiny dudes many, with many models required with complicated little faces and scraggly little mustaches and. So, you know, in that sense, in a cynical way, the Stormcast kind of filled in this need for a, an accessible fantasy army. And when there was no story there, it was not clear how they were different from Space Marines. Yeah. But one thing that I think has been interesting following it since is that they are actually quite, they, they, they feel like a kind of, a, not a commentary on the Space Marine idea, but like a subversion of it. Like they're a completely different version of the same idea. Yeah, they're a much more optimistic yeah. <laughs> version of it, the same idea. Of course, you've got Sigmar, who kind of is a good emperor figure, mm. but Sigmar is alive and doing stuff. Whereas in 40k, of course, the emperor is on life support and kind of dead, but kind of there. You know, yeah, he's very kind of quantum. Is he? Isn't he? Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whereas there is there is this certainty to Age of Sigmar and to Sigmar, particularly with the Stormcast, um, but. There is still, like, even though he's, he's clearly the good guy and he's clearly kind of on the side of humans and he wants to ally with the other gods, basically, he wants to, you know, ally with Nagash and um, Alariel and genuinely beat back chaos, he it, it kind of is a dick. <laughs> uh, he did abandon this, uh, the, the universe and shut himself into in his ear for a long, long time and, and basically was ha- prepared to let all of his allies bite the dust when chaos came back. Uh, and this is his kind of final roll of the dice. And what he's done is he's kind of enslaved souls from throughout the ages uh, to reforge them as these kind of golden warriors. And they're all very keen to fight chaos, but none of them really asked for it. Mm. And whenever they're reforged and they're sent back down, like they don't go back the same. (laughs) There's something strange about them, like that you might lose their voice or their sight or they might just be different. Thousand yard stairs. <laughs> it's a kind of sense that the the Stormcast Eternals are an undead faction, mm. and they're they're wearing gold and they're really shiny. But there is actually an interesting kind of darkness underneath that. And then the notion that whenever a Stormcast dies, they return to Sigmar to Azir yeah. to be reforged, but they lose more of themselves. They lose mm. more of their memories. They lose more of their who they were. And what I find really interesting about what, like I think one of the reasons it seems so similar is that they are they are actually a sort of an interesting twist on an old idea. But if you are not super into that idea of the the kind of the crusading immortal warrior and how it's been portrayed in other fiction, then what is essentially a little deconstruction of it can come across as just a, being a repeat of the same yeah. idea. I think that's they've suffered for that a bit. But one of the things that's really cool, and I think, is that the moment it twigged for me is why it was different, why it was interesting, is they make more sense, the Stormcast, when you think of them as like, it sounds dumb, the good version of a Chaos warrior mm-hmm. or a good version of a Chaos space marine. Like in, in the fiction as it was, um, when you, um, the invading, intimidating warriors from beyond time and space were always the bad guys. It was always good exists in its cities and towns and hobbit holes and the old lord of the rings thing right the thing everything else springs out of is there is good and good is static and good sits in its cities and its towns and then suddenly scary warriors emerge from underground or portals or from the frozen north or somewhere and they pour in 
and the storyline is always good, has to rise up and defend and defeat this seemingly unstoppable force that's, you know, of corrupted warriors or corrupted men or something like that. And Stormcast are the opposite of that. In 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 the, the those early Age of Sigmar stories, the the world is fucked. Like chaos is normal, right? If you grow up in anywhere, your life is probably going to be short and nasty, and you're probably going to be a, a warrior. You know, you're going to be ripping out skulls for the blood god most of the time because that is normal. Hmm. And the intimidating, you know, magicked up warriors that are invading are the good guys. And that itself is a really interesting twist on fantasy. That that is the point where it becomes completely the opposite of Tolkien, yeah. In a way, and in and I think a really useful way, um, and an interesting way. And it's as if you know, on that old Dungeons and Dragons, you know, in the traditional sort of fantasy narrative, on that Dungeons and Dragons, you know, alignment chart, you get warriors and they get corrupted and they move further towards chaotic. And the more corrupted they get, the further towards chaotic they get until you are. You know, till your eyes glow red and you have horns and a tentacle arm or something. And that's how chaos works in, in Warhammer as well. Whereas the Stormcast are the opposite. They start off as quite human and a bit erratic and kind of, you know, they've, they've grown a couple of feet and they're big and gold now, mm. but they're basically people. But the more they die, the more Stormcast they become. And the more Stormcast they become, the more like robots they become until the point where they're emotionless autom- automata. Mm. And so. They're kind of about the fear of becoming more and more lawful good until you don't have a personality anymore, yeah. which is actually like, you know, it's equally horrifying. It is equally horrifying. And that's really interesting as a theme, like as a, as a, as a sort of, as a, a theme to hang your good guys off. It's a really interesting idea. Yeah. It's, it's especially kind of, it's also kind of enabled us to continue our, our rivalry between mm. our two factions. Cause um, with Zinch, if they die, like, the powers of chaos can bring them back, but my, my sigmarites could come back. Like the, um, the Stormcast Eternals could be reforged and the same warriors can fight the same battles over and over again, uh, until one or the other has lost their soul, essentially, either mm. to the constant reforging or to just failure in the eyes of chaos and therefore oblivion. Uh, so it's, it, the, the stakes are pretty high there, you know? It's mm. not like people in the old world who met in a field and then one army won and that's the end of it. There's, there's a kind of, you know, the epic eon spanning conflict that you're part of and, mm. and it's it's a continuation it's a continuous kind of it's a continuum is what i mean yeah I'd say rather than you know a, a skirmish battle here battle there i think it's i think they've hit on something that inadvertently or not they've hit on a, a quite a good um fictional apparatus for a war game because you know I, I, every chance is a problem i think with the old world so which is that so I think in a in a game where you know you and I we play relative semi frequently and when we do a lot of people die. Spoilers tends to be my dudes die a so lot far, yeah. so far. Yeah, um, and for that to be part of an ongoing narrative, every death either death needs to either not matter, um, or matter a lot. But the problem is in a war game it can't matter a lot because. You know, if my, you know, if one of my key characters dies and that's just it, then there's no way, there's no sort of mechanism in the fiction for us to bring, make that part of the story. Then the story's kind of over, right? And that's the weakness of, you know, collecting your unit of, you know, um, imperial swordsmen in the old Warhammer world and 
really getting into the fiction of it and giving them all names and getting really into them because you, they're going to die in every battle you fight. So if they have names, well, that that's useful the information for the one game you play with them. Yeah. Um, and if you don't name them, you have to kind of accept the fact that, okay, you have this replenishing stock of identical dudes that come from somewhere. Uh, whereas because in Age of Sigmar, almost every faction has some way of spinning death is kind of like not important because everyone is either immortal or part of some sort of innumerable host where you just replace someone with an identical dude. <laughs> like sure. if you're a Skaven, there's a lot like there's a yeah. lot of people like you. If you're a, a bloodbound warrior, there's a lot of people like you. If you're a pink horror of Zinch, you're not even a person, you're an idea. So, you know, fine, you can come back. Um, is that we can incorporate those battles into an ongoing story that actually kind of makes sense. And because no one ever really dies, those battles can be hundreds of years apart. Yeah. And we can sort of decide whether they fit into into this ongoing rivalry based on kind of what happens in the game. And that's been really interesting. Like, you know, the very first game we played, I think maybe because we slightly misunderstood one of the rules, you know, your general, your Lord Celestin, who rides a dragon around or a little dragon around, got completely annihilated in the first turn of the first game. He got very much set on magic fire Mm. to death. And had you invested a lot in that character, but we'd established that he was a, you know, a mortal anti-hero that would be the biggest anticlimax in history. <laughs> and you'd have to come up with some real gymnastics to get around that mm. narrative gymnastics. But as it is, we've just established that was his first encounter with Zinch. And that, that, that is now, you know, he got zapped by lightning, zapped back to Sigmar, reforged. And there's a reason he, every subsequent battle has rode out and kicked a lot of ass. Yeah. And it's spurred it's this narrative. Man. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> you kind of, there's not going to tally with like, the Ogrod Thaumaturge, which is like a giant minotaur, um, who's just been like crushed, hit by the Retributor bus. And the Retributors <laughs> are kind of these enormous paladins that Stormcast have, and they're really, really potent, very strong. Um, but he's got, <laughs> he's probably got some sort of phobia of men with hammers now because yeah. they, they, it keeps happening, doesn't it? Keeps it happening it keeps charging back, but yeah. And so those, you know, and we've come up, you know, for him, I sort of, you know, kind of, because he keeps charging spectacularly and dying in every battle, um, and because I collect Zinch and Zinch is the chaos god of kind of like change and fate and treachery and, you know, the kind of the waft of destiny and all the rest of it. Um, um, I decided that his deal was going to be that he can't die. He's kind of like the Captain Scarlet of Minotaurs. <laughs> yeah. Like, he, you know, he, he doesn't always succeed, but just death won't happen to him you know fate and maybe one day we'll figure out why that's happening but i just wanted that to be the one kind of character note on his sheet well the cool thing is that i mean he's going to turn up in the silver tower at some point and it could be the same yeah we kind of established it might be the same guy who shows up in the silver tower and so you know there's a sort of there's a fun kind of maybe now he's throwing himself into these impossible situations because he can't he knows he can't die Mm. um but like having these kind of centuries spanning rivalries as new um things change has been really fun and so that maybe like and so one of the things that's happened subsequently with age of sigma that i think we're both kind of getting a kick out of is those initial stories were pretty basic heroic fantasy because the landscapes were very the landscapes where battles took place were incredibly abstract it's like you're going to be in the landscape of infinite fire fight to go for the pyramid of skulls okay yeah um because that's what it's like when you know the just this is the tip of that assault and then two years into the game's life, there are now cities. They've advanced the timeline by kind of X years, but you get the impression it's been a couple of generations. Hmm. And the forces of good have made enough of a foothold that something resembling, not fully resembling the old world, but, you know, 
it's starting to grow. And that has an interesting effect on the balance of power because uh, the the chaos gods that do the best out of the apocalypse are uh, Nurgle, who's the god of pestilence and disease, who kind of and kind of entropy, who just kind of wants to sit and grow and decay forever. Mm. So he loves it. And Korn, who just wants to fight forever and doesn't really matter who he fights. Yeah. So that's fine as well because chaos can fight chaos and that's perfectly good for Korn because ultimately they're kind of representations of themes and ideas. It's terrible for Slanesh, the god of pleasure. Who's vanished, though. An excess who has vanished. Mm. But, you know, and Zinch, who, you know, becomes more powerful as mortals plot and scheme and try and change their fates. And when they don't have fates to change because Chaos has won, Zinch is very weak. Mm. And so as good has done, as, as Stormcast have done better and Sigmar has, has reclaimed territory in the mortal realms, Zinch is now ascendant. Because suddenly there is hope again. There is, you know, people can change things again. And one of the cool things about the recent, the Disciples of Zinch book that came out recently is it kind of teases at the fact that it's not necessarily a total accident that it went well for Sigma. Yeah. That, you know, um, in terms like, uh, Zinch let some of it happen and in, in, helped some things. So like the defeat of Nurgle was a, Zinch helped basically. Mm. And so that's, and, and the imprisonment of Slanesh, Zinch may have had a hand in that as well. Interesting. Because it's ultimately in Zinch's aim, like, kind of needs cities, needs places to hang out and corrupt and yeah, to yeah. corrupt. Um, and so, and that then has also changed the kinds of stories that you and I are playing around. Cause now we have this idea that, um, you know, what was purely, what was predominantly like a demonic force for me, as in a sort of, you know, timeless evil from a different dimension that would pour into the, pour into reality to achieve some kind of unfathomable aim now has, you know, mortals joining it, you yeah. know, cultists and, uh, crazy bird dudes, a lot of crazy bird dudes, um, as there are more mortals to corrupt. Whereas your stormcast are now kind of getting bedded into, the realm and setting their own objectives beyond simply kill all just chaos. Kind of, yeah. I mean, they've kind of carved out their niche now. And so the, the scenario we played earlier, which we'll talk about later was about the stormcast kind of spotting as each threat on the fringes of the small, but you know, stable civilization they've created and going out and stomping it out. Yeah. We're just ma- like ma- overwhelming force. And that, that's Sigmar's thing now is to, almost like whack-a-mole with the this kind of Zinchian mm. cults that are popping up everywhere. I guess the cool thing for us is that we've we've like we're threading our own sense of who our armies are and who our characters are based on who we're building and painting and adding um around the narrative that Games Workshop are creating around the game. Yeah. And that's a, I think, you know, it's an ideal thing to do given the way we play it, which is predominantly you know, games between friends. Like I have done one Age of Sigmar tournament, mm. but I still think of all of those battles as things that actually quote unquote happened yeah. to my army. They all have a narrative thing. Um, but you know, I'm not really interested in just like random games that don't mean anything. Like every, every game is the ongoing story of this band of mad dribbly pink buggers that. <laughs> charge out of portals and fail predominantly um yeah so it's sort of it's maybe one of the reasons that age of sigma particularly is sort of fit well into our lives is because 
it's a it's not a game that you need a a war games club to get the most out of yeah. necessarily it's sort of if it's felt very alive and very like kind of exciting to be part of as it changes around both of us like like i was saying like i've just had my big zinch thing and it's been my month for mm. a while and next month is kind of yours again yeah it's gonna be the, the vanguard uh forces coming out next month for the songcast and they're getting an updated battle tome which mm. is a, a really good idea the idea that they you know games workshop are patching the game essentially yeah um choose a video game term by releasing iterations of the general's handbook which is kind of the basically the rule book really now isn't it i mean mm. the rules yeah. fit on four pages but they that's where they kind of put the structure in that was necessary for a lot of people to enjoy it um and i think like they put points values back in for example which is a very interesting uh battle that's obviously happened philosophical battle behind the scenes at games workshop about what this game should be and what points do to the game and um they're obviously they wanted it to be quite narrative focused and for people just to put put down models and not to worry too much about balance using point systems but the way we've used it i think we've benefited a lot from the point systems just as a kind of to put us in the ballpark for mm. what what will give us a good game yeah uh, i think it's been enormously healthy the general handbook is basically made it an interesting game for me to keep playing yeah i agree i think it's so that uh, you know officially there are and this is to you know quote the kind of the, the game structure party line on it which is that there are three ways to play age of sigma mm -hmm. which are and either a sort of an ongoing campaign um in a in a matched play which is where you use points values for units to balance two forces and you do scenarios that are based on uh that are designed to be fair basically mm -hmm. then you have narrative play which is more about playing out a story um and the scenarios are designed and, and age of sigma's heart is really in the scenarios like the armies and their rules are a big part of it but so are the the scenarios which are essentially instructions for how you lay out the battlefield what your objectives are how you score points or how you you know win and give yourself an advantage and they can be used to add big complicating factors to the game and the difference with narrative is it's not necessarily fully intended that the battle be fair so much as it be interesting and that is a, a, a thing maybe for more competitive players that's quite hard to get your head around mm. that fair might not be the objective of a, of a competitive game um uh, but what we found, I think, is that I think I, I prefer the narrative scenarios to the match play scenarios. I think yeah. they're more interesting. They, they create more interesting deployment areas and, and objectives and the rest of it. Then we talk about a bit more about that later. But also, but what we found ourselves doing is using the points system, which is designed for match play, to make sure we're in the right ballpark. Yeah, for sure. And the thing that I really admire about the way it's been designed, it reminds me of um, other like pen and paper game design things that i've really appreciated like as a trend recently towards letting the players settle rules disputes themselves so one of the weaknesses i think with um equally with something like warhammer 40,000 and something like dungeons and dragons or a more traditional pen and paper rpg is they force players to do the kinds of things that are very hard for players to do and very easy for computers to do which is like consult three different charts to figure out what the effect of a particular dice roll is yeah. um which isn't actually that much fun it's much it's it's much easier to well it's a different kind of hard so like if you know if, for example a pen and paper game i admire a lot is numenera and numenera has very very simple rules for resolving whether things are successful or not and when things go catastrophically wrong there's no consulting a chart or catastrophically well there's no consulting a chart to figure out exactly what happens it's on the games master to be imaginative and come up with something. 
based on what's happening to be reactive and improvisational yeah. and so you end up in that kind of very analog space of player imagination rather than the very digital space of and well you've got a four on this table so that is an extra damage and you your tank's turret has fallen off or whatever it is um and more games are moving that way i think you know at, at, the reason you know 40k takes so long to play is because of all of the the crazy granularity of its rules which yeah. have answers for everything ish um and age of sigma has an element of that like one of age of sigma's kind of core tenets in the rules is if you can't figure something out just do what makes sense to the two of you which is i think anathema to people who functionally kind of want to be playing chess you know there's no kind of like well this makes sense to me but i really like it for this kind of game because it allows us to um not a spend too much time fretting over the rule book but also i think it establishes a kind of trust between the players as well mm. like you know earlier to give an example out of nowhere trying to figure out if flying golden men throwing hammers at a wizard who's standing on top of a whirlwind should include the wizard getting some kind of cover save because the whirlwind is technically scenery right <laughs> on paper you could have an argument about that you really could and i've been part of wargaming communities for long enough now that i know that you probably would yeah. have an argument about whether standing on a whirlwind constitutes cover however thinking about it in the moment of the game your guys can fly my guy is completely exposed albeit on top of a whirlwind let's say he doesn't get a save because that doesn't who doesn't get an extra save because that doesn't make sense in that context yeah. like you and i can just kind of agree to do it that way mm. and having that kind of flexibility and that quote unquote, like that encourage that uh, within the rules i think encourages players to see each other differently not as two people trying to wrestle control of a rule book in their favor but as people whose ultimate game is to have like a fun evocative experience and think about the mind's eye image of what's happening in the game and what makes sense and what's interesting beyond simply who's wins. And that's what I've really enjoyed about it. And that's my excuse for losing every single game we play. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not like a power gamer at all. I'm in exactly the same position. Um, I think it's interesting because it depends entirely on what you want to get out of it. I think because Chris, you, you enjoy competitive gaming a lot. You play, um, but you've got Dota 2, you've got X-Wing and that mm. feels like that those tick that box better than, um, Age of Sigma could, I think. Yeah. Um, whereas I think the, the what I really enjoy about the rules is that they're very fast and that things can evolve quickly, even though you've got, you've just got the new Zinch Battle Tome, which is, you know, you just look, you've got loads of new spells to do, hmm. but it didn't take hugely long to no. kind of get through it. Um, it's partly because the game only lasted two turns. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Before but, you completely smack it in the face. <laughs> but, uh, it's also because the, the way the game's organized in terms of the phases and what happens in each phase, there, I think there is a, a, a it's very clear. There's a good kind of degree of clarity to it. Especially the use of kind of keywords uh, that describe what the spells could affect. Um, the chucking away tables, which was always a nightmare. Like you'd have to memorize the tables, uh, you know, eventually for Warhammer of um, Fantasy for it, for the game to have any flow at all. Age of Sigmar is um, a very kind of interesting game about movement that flows very quickly. So I've, I'm zapping people down with lightning bolts. Um, I'm flying guys across the battlefield. Everything's moving very quickly. And there's a kind of, we photograph each turn and you can see the kind of flow of people. It's the, mm -hmm. the thing the skirmish kind of style does for it. 
rather than kind of regimented long difficult turns and i, I just i love the way it flows and the way it plays it's just, yeah it feels great yeah and we've ended up in a sort of like you know not to you know, spoil the the game we just had but like good has prevailed in every in every encounter between good and zinch sigma's doing all right sigma's doing all right yeah uh and that I think in another context might be, um, for me particularly, dispositionally like disheartening. Mm. But actually, I'm kind of digging it because partly because I play the bad guys, but I'm invested in the overall story. Stories got a bit weird if the bad guys win all the time. Yeah, like good needs to be doing well, and good is currently like ascendant in a way. Like our first encounters were very close and sort of peri- very close, very yeah. close. And then, um, and then you know, that second game we played was like a massacre on one side but then you won anyway yeah, that, that was really that was an amazing game we yeah. talk about that later actually um there's a sense that like i've got reinforcements coming i've got yeah, I mean, like, a, a look, giant bird man <laughs> is coming i look to my right and this is just a, a stack of terrifying boxes yeah, exactly. waiting to be built including a lord of change that is going to be very interesting to fight yeah um, but you've got reinforcements coming as well and like it's gonna yeah. be exciting to see how that pans out with that in mind uh, before we, maybe we move on to talking about uh what we've been working on hobby wise, it might be good to explain kind of like what the deal is with the, the armies we're building at the moment. Do you want to go first time? Yeah. So I, I fell into Stormcast after getting the start collecting box, um, in which you get, uh, a good, it's really great value. You get a really good sized Stormcast force and a good sized corn force. Um, and I enjoyed painting the Stormcast a lot more, especially as someone getting back into the rhythm of painting, mm. kind of relearning a lot of techniques. Whereas corn is relatively very fiddly, lots of skulls, pouches full of God knows what, and just kind of bits Everyone's of got a pet skull in yeah, chaos. Everyone does. And, uh, so I, I kind of fixated on the Stormcast. Also, their rules are very satisfying and they're quite resilient. So it's very easy to kind of push them around in the beginning and kind of get a lot out of them. So that's as, um, that has grown a lot since then. Uh, I've painted up in the kind of Hammers of Sigma uh, livery, but with some changes. So for different units, I've kind of painted them differently to how you might ordinarily paint that type of chamber. I really like how you've done, done it, actually, because, like, so the Hammers of Sigma is the the poster boy uh, Stormcast colour scheme yeah. for the majority of art you've seen. Blue and gold. Blue and gold. So mm-hmm. gold armour with blue accents, right? But you've done some interesting things with just different materials and different types of unit. Yeah. To try and kind of bring them their own personality. Um, so the liberators, which are your basic standard warriors, they, they are the classic, um, uh, hammers of Sigma color scheme. Uh, but, uh, I eventually I'll get around to doing this. I've got like gradients and stars on the shields and this idea that they're, they are just kind of still made of the stuff of like celestial stuff mm. kind of clings to them. It's part of their aura. Um, so that they are incredibly sparkly, like glittery <laughs> kind of force. Long story short, they're shiny. <laughs> shiny, super shiny. Um, then my, uh, prosecutors who are flying guys, they have this kind of white marble finish. So they're almost kind of like marble warriors that kind of crash down into people and throw hammers. Um, they're almost like statues that come to life and, you know, started fighting people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then, um, my Lord Veriton has kind of, uh, for me, like purple is the color of magic. Mm. And, uh, the Stormcast are very anti-magic. They're very kind of, they don't have wizards. Uh, they've got uh, the Veritant who's a priest, but he's kind of like anti-magic and he doesn't even cast magic himself. He carries around a box that does his kind of anti-magicking for him. Um, but he's kind of bound in this kind of uh, 
really deep purple color. Um, and then for my extremists, which, um, they're the kind of the Dracoth riders, they're your like incredible shock troops that the Stormcast has to have. They're all like red caped. So they, they kind of, there's a sense of army structure. They, they all come from different battalions and different places in Sigmar's kind of forging chambers. And therefore, and they have markers that depict, you know, separate them from each other. Mm. Um, but they can still collectively look like a unified force because gold and blue is still, you know, a, a consistent element across them. Yeah, yeah. But the, the interesting thing about when they march out of Azir in our first, our first match, um, they are, they're one of the vanguard forces and they've never seen Zinch. They've never seen anything. They've just been reforged. They've been training in Azir for hundreds of years. And suddenly they come across just the weirdest shit <laughs> you could possibly hope we kind to. Of, so I think, I think we established after the fact that that first battle had taken place in the realm of fire, which was the mm. first one that Zinch, that, uh, Sigma went the into. Sigma went into. Yeah. Um, which was completely dominated by corn, but we did a scenario which was like an ambush scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, you came out of the mists. Yeah. And our take on it is, so is that where, you know, a, a core of the, of the, of the ambushed force, you, you, you only deploy a tiny amount of your army and, and the rest of your army doesn't appear until the beginning of the second turn. Um, mm. and so we sort of span it as even though, you know, in the official fiction, um, different parts of, of Sigma's army are fighting, uh, corn basically, and corn's warriors everywhere. This one small part of Sigmar's army was actually ambushed by a gaunt summoner of Zinch, mm. who's been my general for the longest time. And as they were sort of wandered off into, you know, into the realms of, they were led into this kind of glimmering m- mist. And when it parted, they weren't surrounded by the forces of corn, but by demons of Zinch, who were there to essentially test them out. Um, because um, a, a note in the fiction is that. Zinch, you can essentially see everything, can't see into Azir, which is Sigmar's realm. And that is a source of frustration for a god whose entire purpose is knowing everything. Yeah. Um, so this was a sort of, you know, little testing of the waters. Sort of what is, you know, to discover what has Sigmar been working on? What is, you know, what are, what's up with the golden dudes? Yeah. What's up with the golden dudes? The, your, the, your first test was to blow my general's head off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which, uh, was, you know, very interesting test. <laughs> are they flammable? The answer, yes. Yes, very flammable. <laughs> definitely died, definitely vulnerable to fire. And uh, yeah, so that first battle was like, you know, your kind of, if one thing that's been kind of cool since is it felt like you, you know, so, you know, your, your Stormcast Chamber's first meaningful encounter wasn't with Korn. It was with Zinch. Yeah. And since then, that's when you've since gained the slightly weirder magical stuff. Mm. Like you gained the Veritant, who is the anti-magic hero that's right. for Stormcast, which makes sense after you, you know, yeah, you've absolutely had been kicked around by magic. But also, like a little bit of that, your your Stormcast are leaning more towards Zinchian themes than Cornate themes, right? Because yeah. you've got a lot of magic, a lot of shooting, like mm. that kind of thing. Absolutely, and it, I think they became almost like relic hunters for me, like. Uh, they, they are kind of searching for knowledge on, on at the behest of their master, which is why they're constantly running into Zinch all the time. Um, and it's why they kind of... The interesting thing is that Sigmar keeps grudges alive. Like, he, he, he sends Stormcast into places where in past lives they have actually gained a, a grudge against that mm. particular force. And they, they all have a... You know, we ha- I've, I've had a few victories, but they've all been totally Pyrrhic victories, like literally just three or four dudes left on the table. And, and those guys are coming back with a vengeance each time and reinforcing and their anger is almost kind of driving them. Mm. Uh, and I think the, the addition particularly of the, the Dracoth cavalry who are like, so in the old world, 
um, cavalry used to be people riding horses. Now the horses are lizards, uh, and the lizards breathe lightning. <laughs> and that's uh, my my unit of formulators who are basically like uh, amazing shock troops that come in, and that feels like Sigma getting serious now, as yeah. each is actually kind of uh, manifesting more obviously and mm-hmm. is more obvious, uh, more obvious threat. He's sending out the real troops, the real things that are going to basically fuck up, <laughs> fuck up the, the threat. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's how it's turned out today because they completely wrecked um a few units and it feels like that's the impact that zeech is now going to have, re- have to react to mm. and maybe the lords of change is the way that zeech kind of decides to that. strike yeah. back yeah so yeah so and you know you mentioned the the relic kind of thing like i know for a while you were considering converting some stormcast to kind of play up with a kind of warrior monk relic hunter thing but it feels like the new stuff the vanguard chamber stuff mm. which um, one of the cool things about it is is the, the Vanguard Chamber or Stormcast who wear pelts and are like hunters and things like that. And the idea yeah. is that this is what Stormcast look like, not when they've just been freshly dropped out of space, but when they, uh, you know, a few hundred years into civilization, when they've been hanging around in the mortal realms for a little bit longer and yeah. they've had time to hunt stuff and wear it, hmm. much to the chagrin of the <laughs> Peter. Of <P>. Peter. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that stuff I think fits in quite nicely as well. But like, would you still consider doing those? Like, I know you were thinking like hoods and robes and that uh, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to do that. Um, I think it's interesting just having, I need to develop some skills to actually do that properly. Mm. So if I wanted to do some green stuff, cloak, cloaks, for example, that's actually like a really hard thing to learn and to do. Um, green stuff's quite difficult to work with. Uh, but I, I kind of envisage kind of golden uh, equivalent of um, the 40k chapter, Dark Angels. Dark Angels, yeah where they wear kind of robes over their armor and it's it's, good, it's kind of silly to put cloth over the armor but it's all about the theatrics of it and the presentation yeah. it's, it's yeah. like don't ever try and apply <laughs> yeah. logic to what warhammer people are wearing <laughs> absolutely because you know, like no one needs as many skulls books <laughs> um daggers pouches mm. like what do they keep in the pouches no, they're too small for anything sense. important but too big to not have something in them yeah. like <laughs> exactly really good question snacks peanuts i don't i don't know what they have but uh, i'd like to do that i think i think i'd um i'd have to convert them from existing hooded models but I, I, I what i really want to do is buy a squad of liberators and just try and do the proper kind of cloaks yeah. and put kind of um scrolls on them and scribes and stuff like that they, they they're almost they're special because sigma has allowed them more knowledge than your typical stormcasts would ever mm. be allowed. So typically, the stormcasts are just simply warriors that go down and kill things. Yeah, piety is a big deal. Absolutely. Right? Like, yeah. um, and you know, <laughs> actually knowing things isn't a prerequisite to being a stormcast. In fact, Sigma probably doesn't want the stormcasts to know anything because mm. as soon as they start learning things about their situation, I imagine they won't be a lot of ambivalence and moral kind of ambiguity sets in like what's your role as a stormcast if you if you know that you're doomed to eventually be an empty vessel yeah um but the, this would be the kind of he's allowed them this knowledge because they have to go and see see seize relics and they have to go and fight zinch and also that's a way in for zinch so zinch like ha, it can corrupt my particular chamber of stormcast because they've opened themselves up to that yeah, yeah. So I, I want to i want that stuff visually represented on the models eventually i'm mm. just trying to figure out how to do it so my so the, there are two sides to what I'm doing, partly because I'm doing half demons and the first biggest chunk of the first stuff I did was all demons. And now I'm bringing in the Arcanites, which are the kind of the mortal Zeech forces. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And because demons are, you know, they're not like really mortal creatures. They're kind of just like, you know, twisted idea. They're each represent, they're each represent an aspect of the patron God. So they're just like sort of little manifestations of Zinch, but they can be themed around an idea or a kind of a concept or something. So for Zinch, that tends to be themes of, you know, change and mutation, destruction and sort of, uh, you know, uh, treachery and madness and that kind of thing. Um, for my demon stuff, I, I wanted the theme to be kind of more on the sort of kind of madness and perception kind of thing. So the sort of the hearing secrets and the repeating secrets and the kind of being changed forever by some sort of forbidden knowledge kind of area of things, you know, ties into my interest in Lovecraft and, and yeah. that kind of thing. Zinch is the most Lovecraftian chaos god, so it's not really sure. surprising that he's the one that I dig the most. Um, and so the kind of the, the, the sort of the concept that came up with for them is is the sort of the the classical idea of the music of the spheres which is basically the idea that um you know it's it's greek philosophers going why can't we hear the sun right like on paper the bigger things are the more noise they make and the sun's real big so why can't we hear it and the idea is you can't hear it because you've always heard it you know it's the sound you've always heard therefore you can't hear because it's been there since the moment you were born and will be there the moment you die and so um, the idea I came up with was what if there was a sort of like a lord of change, a, a, a greater aspect of Zinch that kind of represented that um, whose presence was felt as a kind of twist in the sort of the music of reality and mu- using music as a theme, basically this kind of like warped song, which fits with bird imagery, which Zinch is big on and the yeah. kind of, there's a lot of screaming and howling and chattering and stuff amongst each demons. So there's this idea of this kind of like kind of revelatory music that would make you mad forever, basically. And that was the the basis for the demon host, which all represent figments of that. So, and that's kind of represented in the way I painted my army through the green flame, the green, like all of the pink horror banners have green flame pouring from them. Um, the pink horrors have green flame, the flamers, you know, green flame is bursting from them. And this will hopefully kind of represent a sort of like back to that music of the spheres thing, uh, a green star, like some kind of like warp star Mm -hmm. and kind of, or, you know, that everything else kind of emanates from. And when I do my Lord of Change, which is going to be the big project I come up to next, that model is going to be the kind of, the purest representation of that. And I've got some conversion ideas for the, how I'm going to frame that model that I'm really excited about. I, I would lo- basically I'm going to do some stuff with, with green stuff and plastic card to kind of try and have him kind of tearing these kind of like cosmic holes in reality yeah. on his base, because right. I'd like this idea that, yeah, a, a Lord of change is a, you know, 20 foot tall bird demon, but they're also kind of just an idea. And, you know, this is this kind of like, a bit like looking directly in the sun, into the sun. You shouldn't really be able to look directly at this kind of warping change demon, basically. But that gave me kind of like my key colors where green is the like sort of greeny turquoise is the kind of the key color of magic, but it feeds into the other two key colors, which are blue and purple, which are the sort of the kind of the cosmic kind of colors of everything else. And so the gradient of, of green flame into blue, into purple with starlight and the sort of celestial thing was one of the things that actually both of our armies have in common. Yeah, that's true. Um, 
where the green is the kind of the twisted kind of chaosiness mm. for me. So um that has informed everything else. So like when I came to do my Ogroid Thaumaturge, it's the Manitor guy. He is blue because he's blue. And he has the sort of the gleaming white tattoos, but his hands where the magic are all purple up to the up to the kind of the elbow yeah. and sort of twisted and kind of this magical flame and green flame bursting from his staff. Um my gaunt summoner spends a lot of time on top of a Balewind Vortex, which is supposed to be like a kind of vortex of souls. It's a terrain piece that is a summonable game piece. Um, and it's normally painted as either like a column of flame or a column of magic energy, but I deliberately did mine as kind of like twisting space, basically. It has yeah. stars around the bottom of it from green through blue to purple. Um, with the idea that all of this is sort of em- emanations of the same greater demon. And as I come into doing my, um, mortals, they all bear either the signs of the green fire and everything else or kind of colors in, in tribute to it. So, um, because when I first started myself painting my silver tower models, I ended up following kind of the, the color schemes that were on the box. Cause I was learning to paint again and yeah. everything else. Um, I've ended up basically doing my army in the color, in the color scheme of what is now called the cult of the transient form, which basically is as of the release of the book last month, what that color scheme is called. But the way I'm kind of choosing to play it is like, those are the kind of the colors that represent that aspect of being as each disciple and the transient form isn't actually a bad metaphor for what i'm getting at anyway it's the idea that there's this sort of you know sort of twisting form underpinning the reality that these characters live in and then so that sort of led to kind of what i want to do with the mortal side of it which is all based around a civilization that has collapsed but where their entire system of government was based on music and so if you know there was a sort of a piece of music that defined their culture and eventually that got subverted turned up to weird by you know various agents of zinch and so the my general freshly painted um the most recent model i've done is a chaos sorcerer lord that i've converted that he's sort of pulling down this orb of green flame which represents again that kind of howling sphere of kind of music magic um and the notion that he's sort of the um kind of musician prince responsible for being the kind of for dooming this civilization by essentially playing the bad chord <laughs> you know their the entire chord of wrong their civilization played like the chord of a ball you know the, the chord of moving to a cool island in the realm of metal and then the chord of becoming a free and egalitarian democratic society and then they accidentally played the chord of oh shit <laughs> <laughs> and demons forever or bird people forever hmm. And I'm about to expand it out into a lot of um, Zangor, which are the kind of Zinchian bird beast men, with the idea that they are all that remain of that society. Is this kind of, you know... They're the twisted form. Yeah, the twisted form of it is like a flock of birds that sing this kind of mad, hmm. discordant um, harmony forever and materialize in different parts of of the realms to uh, lose battles spectacularly, apparently. <laughs> but like, you know... Um, ideally spread that song and kind of continue to corrupt the fabric of reality. That, that, those are the kind of ideas that I'm kind of keen to play with, but it's, it's been fun kind of having that idea. Th- these are, these are the ideas that you have when you're spending hours and hours and hours painting. Yeah. But then as we play games, new ideas come in and we kind of figure out where it all fits together. And that's been really 
It has been Tony. interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to at some point starting a new army and kind of concepting out quite thoroughly before starting it. So the Stormcast ended up being blue and gold because mm. like you, I wanted to get back into painting and so I followed a lot of the Games Workshop guides. Uh, and that's evolved in a really cool direction as our kind of ongoing story has progressed. Uh, but I'm quite excited about starting like a Sylvaner, a Realm of Death Sylvaner force mm. and kind of working through what that would really look like and getting some cool conversions in, especially because as you start to collect Warhammer, you start to get a good bits box of just various kind of spare bits of stuff from the sprues that you don't need to use on your models that suddenly become ideas for new models and like heavily personalized forces. Uh, so I'm very excited about the future of that. Yeah. Like um, my side project is going to be a, um, a corn army from the same place as that civilization, but with a very different culture. Yeah. So I like the idea of these different sort of almost modeled after Greek city states, sort of cities in the realm of metal before it all went to shit. Hmm. Um, where one of them is, you know, one of the, all of the different cities would have fallen, fallen to chaos in different ways from playing the bad chord to, um, a kind of like a, a workers uprising in a city of, um, you know, cause it's the realm of metal, the city of like forges and mining and, and all the things where the, the slave labor force of that city rises up hmm. And finds in corn a kind of egalitarian kind of figurehead. So, you know, cornianism basically, <laughs> where it's kind of like, well, you know, what do all human beings have in common, regardless of social class? Skulls. Yeah. They've got them. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, pull them out of the heads. So I want to do a kind of, um, you know, for like kind of metal themed corn army with mm. where everything has got like forge blackened hands and, and fl- like uh, blades that kind of glow with, as if they've just been dipped in a furnace yeah. and that's kind of that energy has kind of f- followed them around since the, they first threw off their shackles and, and took a lot of skulls, <laughs> you know, the mixed blessing, but I painted one character in that army so far, which is a slaughter priest that I'll, I'll uh, you know, pictures in, in the show notes for a lot of this stuff. But that I think will be my, it's the same as you. It's that's the first force I've completely conceptualized. Yeah before I've painted anything. Mm. And so it may well end up looking way better, I think, honestly. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I'm, you know, also really excited about steering the Siege Force that I didn't fully plan mm. into a coherent whole that I have a coherent sense of what it all means and how it all fits together. Yeah, for sure. So shall we talk a little bit about the stuff we've been painting recently? Yeah, let's do like a hobby Hobby bit. Hobby bit. We're still inventing this, making it up as we go along. We are. So let us know what you like and what you, you'd like to hear more of. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we've both got two projects. We've both got loads of boxes of stuff. Yeah. Christmas has just happened and the big siege awards. Yeah. Just happened. So, um, so yeah, so I've got my piles of, of chaos stuff and I tend to be dipping back into that. So I, you know, the thing I was recently finished was my sorcerer lord, but, um, way back in October, <laughs> shamefully, uh, we picked up the, um, Burning of Prospero of course, yeah, set, yeah. which is a stand, well, it's a standalone game set in the Horus Heresy, which is essentially Warhammer 30k, which is the sort of the origins of the Imperium Chaos Palava, <laughs> Galactic Palava. Yeah. Um, and that is a standalone sort of battle game uh, with its own rules distinct from Warhammer 40k or, or, or the Horus Heresy stuff. Um, but with kind of two factions of models, um, one are 
the space wolves that have been sent to burn the planet of Prospero, which belongs to the Thousand Suns, who are the the kind of the thinky nerdy space marines of yeah. that era. But they who, got too thinky. They too got nerdy. too thinky. <laughs> and so they must be killed. Yeah. Um, That's how it works. That is how it works. And so um, the Thousand Suns are the ones that will subsequently, having uh, having been persecuted for being too thinky, will be subsequently uh, lured to the worship of Zinch. So never one to miss belonging entirely to one theme. <laughs> I took the Thousand Suns half of the box and you took the Space Wolves Indeed. half of the box. And so, like, those, those thousand suns, um, I am still working on and I'm determined to get through them before I really launch into like the meat of my new Zinch stuff because I don't like, I don't mind having multiple projects on the go and I quite like doing different things while I do a different project. Mm. But in the time it's taken me to do like the first of two squads of thousand suns space marines, I have painted like an entire set of objective markers for my Zinch army, that Bailwind Vortex I mentioned, and that Sorcerer Lord I mentioned, yeah. all as basically procrastination away from doing my <laughs> Thousand Suns. So I need to I need to knuckle down and do them. One of the reasons it's taken me a while is because I um I did one test model and now I'm doing the rest. But I really like so the 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 cool thing about the Horus Heresy. Like I really like the Horus Heresy as a setting, yeah. uh, distinct from Warhammer Forty Thousand, in because it is a sort of it's it's much it's Warhammer 40k is very baroque anyway, and very detail rich and kind of kind of horrific. Like everything is horrifying in Warhammer 40,000. There yes. are no there are no there is no USS Enterprise full of you know clean lines and just good looking people flying around. Everything is horrible mm. all of the time, and that's nice. But 30k is almost more so. Like it's almost medieval in its kind of take on the far future, and um. In the art that Games Workshop produced for this new game, for Burning of Prospero, the Thousand Suns, whose armor is red and gold, are done in a kind of traditional style red, like a kind of matte red with highlights. But on the Forge World website, where you get most of the Horus Heresy stuff, Forge World being Games Workshop's, like, fancy arm. Yeah. Fancy, very expensive resin models arm. Mm. Um, the Thousand Suns are done in metallic red, like a kind of deep metallic red with gold, makes them look like Iron Man, basically. Um, and that is not an easy effect to achieve. Uh, well, actually it wasn't when I started this. Games Workshop has since released some kind of like paint tints and things you can use to make metallic yeah. colors of different, yeah. other than the kind of the ones they sell. It was like literally two weeks after you started painting. Yes, it was. And thanks for reminding me of that thing. <laughs> but the, so the approach that I've committed to now, and I really like the result of it, it's just time consuming, is to, um, spray them gold and then sort of painstakingly wash over the red bits. Um, with, so then to shade, then to shade all of the gold, um, with different layers of washes and so dry brush highlights and things like that. And then to wash over the bits that will be red with thin layers of actually not a games workshop or a citadel paint, but a Vallejo paint of uh, transparent red, mm. um, which looks terrible the first two coats right. and then looks okay. And then to shade it again with two more loads of washes which creates this kind of metallic red, like a deep metallic red, which I really like the way it looks. But, and initially I thought this was also going to save me time because yeah. technically base coating is the most painstaking thing. And I was spraying them gold. So what's the problem? And it takes fucking forever, forever. Yeah, yeah. It takes a million years. And it, it, and also it's like, one thing I've discovered is all models go through a phase where they look fucking garbage, right? Like you, you've, you've 
assembled it and it's gray and plastic and boring and it looks okay and you spray it the base coat or primer and it looks okay and then some point between there and finished is total trash (laughs) yeah and i found that this method because of the streakiness of those layers when they first go on goes through a substantial total (laughs) fucking garbage phase (laughs) must be quite demoralizing it is (laughs) it's profoundly demoralizing and i'm doing 10 of them at a time so it's taken me fucking forever and i'm currently still working through like doing some like now bringing out the black details and doing the guns and that kind of thing and painting black over gold that looks garbage the first two times Mm. so i'm determined to finish it because i know i'm going to like how they look when they're done because they're going to look good god damn it yeah but it's going to take me ages to get there but every time I leave them halfway, like often I'll finish a couple of hours of doing the same stage on all of the models. And then like, I just need to finish something good like, or, or at least decent. I'm going to go paint a different model mm. and I'll do that in a day and then I'll go back to them. But I, I kind of, before I do my Lord of Change or my Zango or any of that, I want that. I want them done. Out of the way. Yeah. Because after this, I've got decals to do. Oh, yeah, I've got three decals on every single model. Well, you, you picked the Zinch faction. This I is did. You get, really. Yeah, I know. Why do they, why do we need so many runes? Like, do we ever about, consider yeah. not having a rune-based <laughs> insignia system? Do we need runes on everything? Apparently we do. Absolutely. That's what knowledge looks like in the future. Yep. Just a lot of runes. Um, speaking of which, how are your uh, Space Wolves going? Uh, they, they're going good. I think the difficulty I'm having is making their colour scheme not boring. Mm-hmm. Um, because the 40,000 Space Wolves are quite blue. Almost kind of like ice blue. Um, depending on the way you do them. Whereas the 30k equivalent are basically just grey. Mm. And just grey is really boring. And it's, uh, it's, cause we both spray undercoat, undercoat grey, don't we, with them? Yeah, apart from my gold. Yeah, of course, yeah. those ones. Um, so I spray undercoat them and I was like, well, they're basically finished. <laughs> so how do I, actually, <laughs> how do I actually bring something extra to, to them? So I'm actually using them as a way to learn how to do kind of battle damage and scarring and, mm. uh, learning a lot of those techniques. So, uh, I've got my, uh, kind of one of my space marine captains who, um, just kind of getting really in close with a very small brush and doing the kind of battle scratches on the armor, um, that you don't see at all from tabletop distance. Um, but if you pick it up and put it like five inches from your face, you'll be like, Oh, that looks nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's, it's been an interesting, I still can't quite make them pop and I'm wondering what to do to actually kind of brighten them up a bit and, it kind of fits 30k that they would be quite, uh, you know, a dulled down kind of, uh, less shiny fantasy than Age of Sigma. Uh, but at the same time, I kind of want them to kind of pop off the tabletop a little yeah. bit more. Like, um, 30k is an, a weird thing from a painting point of view because, you know, there's an art, it, it is essentially, I mean, I've seen a, an argument that it's essentially a historical war game. It's mm. just pretend history. Yeah. And so I, when I've been painting my, my guys, I've been, I, I've been more, I've been paying more attention to things like real materials and how real materials reflect light. I'm actually not shading the metallic red enough. I'm letting real light do it because it's metallic. Yeah, sure. Um, because those kinds of, you know, very harsh, you know, the, the kind of the harsh artificial highlights that make a, a an Age of Sigma miniature pop make everything look quite cartoonish in a yeah, good way, yeah. but or like, you know, or like a piece of fantasy art. It fits that fantasy, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Whereas with my 30k stuff, I'm, I'm trying to think about like, I'm just going to let them be in a way. Mm. And that is obviously, it's okay. Like, at least by the time I get to that point, I've made some pretty shiny red men. But I, when your guys are gray, I can see that being a, a harder a thing. Good to... contrast, I think, as well, between when, they, when my guys are fighting your guys actually on those 
boards where we actually play the game, which will be a long time because <laughs> <actually, laughs> I'm, I'm being really slow with them as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I think they'll contrast nicely. Um, I was also a bit luckier in that I got a greater variety of models out of that set because I've got the Citizens of Silence, um, who are great, really awesome models. Um, love those models. And the Custodes, um, which are just kind of Emperor's big gold personal, men. personal yeah. bodyguard. And they're big boys. They're <laughs> huge. They're massive. Even compared to a Stormcast, they're slightly larger. Um, but luckily for them is that if there's one thing I know how to do now, it's paint fucking gold. <laughs> uh, so it's if they're an extension of everything I've done with my Stormcast, really. And uh, just kind of uh, painting the Stormcast and the Custodes has been an interesting... Uh, I feel like I've really gotten to know that paint. <laughs> like paints have such different kind of behaviours and consistencies, even within within a Citadel range. Mm. Um, like gold as a base colour, the Retributor Armour is the gold base that um, Gaze Workshop have. And you just sort of learn its foibles and what it doesn't yeah, yeah. like. And it can, like, the key to it is just getting a really good, clean base layer that is the correct consistency. And if you do, if you just put it straight on or water it down at all, it doesn't like being watered down. It doesn't like being watered down. Because it separates and turns mm-hmm. into almost a kind of Green. strange, yeah. Um, and all its, kind of, all its component parts just sort of, <laughs> it hates itself that paint it, it really hates itself so it's, a, it's got a serious self-loathing problem because it it, it, it separates in the bottle you have to shake it mm. i find i have to shake it every sort of 20 minutes just to keep its consistency correct if you water it down it gets it split um so it's about getting like thin coat the first coat you put on it's yellow it's very yellowy gold mm. it's the second coat you put on that actually becomes this sort of deep lustrous kind of base yeah. that the rest of the gold pops off properly so having learned all that they're, they're, they're going to look real nice and <laughs> confident. Um, and I've gotten good at highlighting and low lighting with, because uh, you can low light with the kind of Agrax Earthshade and washes and stuff on gold mm. and it can look quite effective because it not only uh, darkens the colour, it also takes off the shine. So you can use that tactically to kind of create shinier points uh, as a kind of visual highlight as well. Yeah, I've taken to double shading gold. Mm. Gold is the thing we both have in common. <laughs> yeah. Everything I paint has gold trim it everywhere. Does actually, yeah, yeah. Um, and trim is a different thing in terms of figuring out how to do that mm. properly. Um, I also have painted a lot of retributed gold. I've actually not shied too much away from like the two thin layers of watered down retributed because it ends up a little bit greener, yeah. which I actually quite like because I mm. tend to have it next to turquoise or next to green. It kind of links it to Yeah. Mm. But I tend to shade it, um, either once or twice with Reichland flesh shade, which yeah, is much redder. Yeah. Um, which, and then with Seraphim sepia, which is, mm. um, browner shade but it's not as dark as agrax earth shade yeah and so like once with with sepia and once with and then in the sort of deep recesses with that redder shade with with the flesh shade i find quite a kind of it creates like a nice variety of tones within the gold yeah. like um particularly because then you end up going for quite a sharp highlight with actually silver yeah, on sure. top of gold mm. i kind of like i want all of my materials Admittedly, this is just the zinc stuff. I'm doing a bit more muted with the 30k stuff, but I want all of my materials to look like this sort of some like light, if I can possibly get there, and I'm not really a good enough painter to get 100% there yet, is to have the idea that there are sort of multiple textures and multiple shades kind of swimming around within any of these materials. Yeah, sure. Like the kind of weird shiftiness is mm. a good look for a zinc army. Definitely. It's, it's been interesting kind of learning how to just that one material is quite interesting the depths of it are quite interesting like there's a lot of mm. different things you could do with that i'd kind of uh i'd love to just get some really cheap test models and just do some mad stuff like a drooky violet over it and see what the hell happens to it even mm. if i'm just watering it down using a Lamian medium which is probably the best pot i've bought 
Yeah, it's but great. It's really amazing stuff. It's and to explain, it's it's basically just pure pigment, uncolored. So it's the, it's the stuff of the paint without any of the actual color, and you use it to change the consistency of your paints. Um, and it means you can sort of use it as a wash sometimes, but it's really super flexible. You can use it with almost anything to mm. change its properties and make it more malleable, and especially good for colors that are quite extreme, that are a bit too intense. That you can. It's good, great for washes, for example. So Gulliman Blue is a really strong blue kind of glaze. Mm. But if you put some go fifty fifty lime medium, it becomes an actually useful color that is it creates a great glowing effect on white. It's really cool. Yeah, I use I use quite a lot of Gulliman Blue to um, unify greens and blues. Yeah. I find because I tend to like I uh, my kind of standard armor color is a kind of blue to turquoise to a sharp green highlight, mm. and that. Um, I find for those first few layers, actually on on or very lightly watered down Gilliman blue is a really nice way of because that first layer of turquoise over blue pops too much. Yeah, they they, they clash a little bit. So and then you binds them. You binds them, and then you do another go with with uh, Temple Guard blue, which is a sort of slightly more turquoise oh, yeah. blue, hmm. and that kind of creates that kind of um, again the effect that there's like some sort of light within the within hmm. the armor panel or, or whatever it is. Yeah, it's it's been. It's been interesting, just kind of getting some skills back and also realizing how bad I am at certain things. Yeah. Um, so starting to do some freehand stuff with like the stars of the cloaks, which is going quite well. I really like how your stars have come out actually. Like, yeah. I, I'm struggling with it to make them as, as, as nice. It's, um, I couldn't I, like do symbols or anything yet or any of the kind of mad stuff that people do. Like the, um, the most amazing stuff I see is when people put like lining on, in capes, mm. where it would be like a perfectly thin, dark line that is looks yeah. as though it's sewn into the fabric i was like well no, i'm not ever going to be able to do that I mean, my hand just shakes far too much and uh just don't have that kind of level of control at that that scale but um that's that's one of the reasons why white dwarf is so exciting because you want mm. you look at it and you see what you can't do when it comes to the freehand stuff like i the the, the freehand i'm happiest with is the inside of the book that my gaunt summoner is oh, holding yeah, yeah kind of arcane scribbles it's scribbles, it but like, music? it's actually quite neat. Mm. Like, because when I did the, the summoners familiars, which are like, there's one of them is like a little book with legs and an ass. And the inside of those books are a bit mad and a bit scribbly. And it kind of worked. And it wasn't in fully what I intended, but I was still learning, but it sort of works because it's supposed to be this mad little familiar and it's not supposed to be like a serious character. Yeah. But I did the extra work with the summoner to try and make the inside of the book. Like it's all mad Zinchian symbols and things, but there's like a, there are margin lines and like illuminations and yeah. like stuff that you have to, you know, have to kind of have to be neat or they look kind of bad. Mm. Um, and I just took, I, I think the thing I learned was I just had to take a little bit more time with it, be willing to go in and correct mistakes with yeah, page color, but also, um, like I use sub assemblies extensively, which is when you, paint models in parts and then glue them together after hmm. so much so that my next lot of thousand suns i'm probably going to be almost entirely sub assemblies right like i'm gonna do them in a lot of pieces because i find it easier psychologically to be like oh all the shoulder pads are done now hmm. all the legs are done now um and likewise my zangor i'm going to probably do them that way but i did my gaunt summoner in a few key sub assemblies and when all you've got in front of you is the book in a little pin vice and you can just do that yeah that's I find it a bit easier to do the freehand than trying to like do freehand around whatever other details are on the model or in the, in the gaunt summoner, summoner's case is actually pulling a column of fire out of the center of the book with a dagger. And if any of that stuff had been in place when I did the freehand, it would have been impossible. Yeah, sure. So I think if like, 
I'm probably a bit weird in that I do almost all my painting off the base and in multiple sub-assemblies. Mm. And if I didn't do that and I assembled the models and then painted them, which is by all accounts fine because it's what every tutorial I see you watch does. Yeah. I think those kinds of freehand things are harder just because the angles are weirder and you can't set up the ideal thing to just essentially draw mm. with a pen, with a paintbrush. Sorry. And absolutely. I should do that, but I'm too impatient because <laughs> I, I want to see the models kind of, uh, assembled and kind of done but uh, i'm definitely going to do that with my celestant prime which is the kind of stormcast mega boss spaceman spaceman yeah uh, incredible model and absolutely can't wait to paint it it's gonna be next month's project i think uh, but that i'm gonna it's got he's got this kind of swirls of magical energies which are going to actually properly sub do, do sub assemblies and paint separately and um do it properly basically yeah and see if it makes a difference um yeah it's funny because like I, I was so convinced that my lord of changes is going to take me a month and require like 18 different sub-assemblies. Yeah. But looking at the model now that I've got it, I've realized that actually it's probably dumb to do this in sub-assemblies. Mm. Like it's quite an open pose. It's a big model. It'll probably be fine. Yeah. I'm probably still going to do sub-assemblies, but like mm. I've re- like I- I'm having to wean myself back on to just like sometimes it's okay to stick the model to its base before you paint it. Absolutely. I think so, so stuff like the staff would be good separately because there's lots of... I'm probably going to do the arms separately. Yeah. But have... I'm probably going to do the arms like waist loincloth tabard stuff separately mm. um but do the legs body wings and neck and head as one assembly yeah because there's no overlap there like they flow that it has a long fucking neck like it'll be okay you know mm. i'm not gonna and it's huge like i'm not gonna be able to like not get a paintbrush around somewhere because it's fucking massive the advantage of doing that is that you see that you keep get to keep everything consistent across the model and kind of adjust contrast in different areas to yeah. make certain bits pop so um i went back over my first stormcast and i've given them all silver faces now because mm. um faces and hands should pop it feels like that's where the eye should go yeah yeah um so it becomes easier to do that stuff if it's already together and you can see see which bits are overwhelming the bits that you actually want people to look at um so yeah it seems like it, it's a good fit for that model mm. something that i found like you mentioned lamy medium and when i started painting my silver tower stuff i was like lamy i used loads of it mm. for those blends and for yeah, make sure yeah. i got like nice even transitions and I love painting gradients, like generally. So, yeah. like, um, like the cloak on my gaunt summoner and, and that kind of thing. Um, since Christmas, I've started painting with a wet palette, mm. um, which I got from uh, P3, uh, and it's just essentially a a sponge or like a piece of packing foam, essentially, on which you put a piece of what is essentially baking paper, and that stays wet, and you put paint on the wet paper, and that. And when you close the the box that this all comes in, it'll stay wet for for a while, and it keeps paint wet, and that's why it's called a wet palette. It turns out because yeah. it's a palette, but it's wet. Um, and I'd heard people talk about why these were useful, and you can make one at home if if you don't want to buy one. I bought one because I couldn't be asked to make one, but it was only a tenner for for what yeah. it is. And what I found it it's really good for mixing paints, which is something I wasn't very comfortable doing previously. So like, if you want to do a gradient from blue to purple, it's something I do quite a lot. The, um, a previous, you know, the way I would do it previously was mix, um, you know, base coat the blue, then do a mix of the purple and quite a lot of Lamy and medium to get essentially a purple glaze and then glaze over the areas, um, like half of that area to get like a purple top half or whatever it is. And then mix a little bit more purple in 
and then do it again and then it makes it a little more purple and wait for it to dry it for each one and then essentially what you've done is done several layers of mostly transparent purple over blue and then let's increasingly opaque purple until you have a, a, a gradient which works really well yeah but i found that the wet palette has allowed me has meant i skip them it's almost cut out the middleman a bit and as a result i've completely stopped using lamium medium which is now i just put the blue in and then mix some purple into it and then paint that yeah mix of those two colors and then just add some more purple and then mix that and so and you know or even just do two dollops of colors either side and then run them together yeah so you have a complete gradient like a completely like you have every tone and then you can just pull the paint from whichever part of the the tone you're looking for and then even do some wet blending on the model and so that's what i've done for the a lot like a lot of the detail on my the sorcerer lord that i just finished on the on the cloak and the and his robes and things which are a green to purple gradient and that i find really kind of gratifying because it creates i think a better effect without without the need to reach for a medium in order to make those glazes yeah um so I've certainly noticed it for that. Like it hasn't, you know, and the other thing it's been useful for is, um, the thing it's really good for. And the reason I probably recommend one is it waters paints down about the right amount. Yeah. That's the thing without you having to gauge it. Yeah. That keeps the consistency across you. Yeah. You think so. And it's quite like, so suddenly it became a lot easier to gauge the consistency I needed to maintain with that red ink for the thousand suns mm. because it's, I just go with whatever, the wet palette is giving me is establishes my baseline and sometimes you want it a little bit more or a little bit less or whatever but that you know it creates a a baseline of usable paint because you shouldn't paint directly out of the pot yeah that you can then moderate rather than the way i was doing it previously which is sort of like guesstimating water on brush mm. into a onto a dry palette so it's something i definitely recommend like i feel like i it's not going to be until till i do like a big project like the lord of change that i see the real benefit of, of working that way. But in terms of like this month's painting tips from Chris, like that's probably the thing that is, has been the biggest difference maker for me. Yeah. I've, I've lost so much paint that has just died on the palette as well. Mm. Like sheets and sheets and sheets of it. Cause I use the um, gaze workshops kind of, they get a little book of kind of uh, plasticky Pape. paper mm. um, that works, but you know, it dries under my lamp like really quickly. So I've, I've lost kind of, I, I try to think how much paint's just died on there and never been recovered. Yeah. So at least the, the idea of a wet palette is that it stays usable and you actually get all of your use out of it. I think one thing it, it teaches you as well is like how much paint, because the paint doesn't dry very quickly because it's on a wet base, mm. like the paint will at least last the session that you're painting. Yeah. You don't have to add to it. Mm. You, you add more paint when you've run out of paint yeah. and you realize how far it goes if you don't, if it doesn't dry on the palette. Mm. Like, um, you know, I learned that like one, like, cause the, to their credit, the Vallejo paints come in like a dropper bottle rather than the Citadel kind of lid top thing, which is a bit weird. Mm. And so like one kind of like healthy squeeze of the dropper bottle was like three Space Marines. Okay. And that was nuts because that was like half a thumbnail's worth of paint. Oh, wow. And considering how much I might put down if I was going to yeah. do a similar amount yeah. with like in a palette, like it was eye opening, like, mm realizing oh this is how far i can make paint go if i if if it doesn't just yeah like you say die on the palette <laughs> excellent i'm gonna get one of those yeah should good definitely i think they're available from like um element games and whaling games and and firestorm like those kinds of yeah like third party-ish games retailer places i think the one 
tip I'd share has been just some basic kind of brush care stuff. Because mm. um, brushes, once the tip goes pointless, put it in the bin. Unless, well, you can use it to mix paints and stuff, obviously. Um, or as an implement to mess around green stuff. But uh, yeah, it's it, it just um, where possible, not getting paint all the way up the brush. Because when paint dries at the base of the brush, that's when it splits your tip. Right. So um, it's very hard to do with very small brushes because they're obviously so tiny. Like in order to get enough paint into the bulk of it, you kind of need to soak it all all up in paint. But I've got some I've got some nice brushes um, where the they're kind of like three quarters of an inch long, and um, an important part of kind of keeping them alive has been never getting paint further than like halfway if possible. Um, so that when they're cleaned, the bristles at the base stay intact, and obviously. When you're when storing the brushes, never ever leave them <laughs> upended in in the uh, the water or anything like that. Uh, just leave them completely flat all the time until yeah. you use protectors. Just basically, stuff like that has actually helped the my brushes stay intact, and mm. th- that's what really matters. It seems when you're actually going in for small details. Yeah, I need to pay more attention to that because I, I go through brushes quickly. Like mm. I tend to use army painter brushes, which are quite oh, yeah. cheap. No, no. Like they're at three quid a brush, and I'll refresh my set every month or so. Right. Um, I have got a couple of Citadel brushes and they're actually a lot better, mm. I found, like the higher quality. But then you pay for them. But they're a lot more expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I've, I do have problems with them splitting mm. and having to change what I'm using different brushes for quite a lot. Mm. Um, and that's, yeah, that's probably a good thing to bear in mind. I, I think I've, the other thing I found is like not actually being afraid of larger brushes. Yeah, sure. Because I think when I started painting, I had this idea that like if you ever went over the line, you had fucked it up forever. Yeah, yeah. But as I've gotten more confident, I found myself feeling like actually, you know what, a fucking massive brush is probably fine here because mm. I, you know, I know I can fix problems after the fact, but also the time it will save me is actually like meaningful in the long run. And often any problems you create by by going a bit, you know. Going home, going home mm. can either be fixed or you will never notice <laughs> ever. I find that um, for large areas, it's actually better to use a large brush because you get more um, consistent coverage with a large brush than you would with lots of kind of going back and again and again and again with a small brush. Yeah. Uh, so especially for like capes for my um, uh, for my Drakoth cavalry, just been going in with I think it's corn red and mm. just with a large brush and just the right amount of water. It's yeah, like they, they look coverage. great as well. Though. Sure they turn out really, really well. Yeah. Um, that's the most recent thing you've done right like, that is the, that's what i've been lavishing the most care on just one of them particularly the other one's just got base base coat colors on but the other one is just um i put like loads of hours into it just because the models are fucking magnificent yeah. absolutely love the design of those models um and it's weird because when i saw the pictures of them they look quite statically posed mm. um especially compared to the lord celestine on drakoth who's my general who yeah, he is posing though to be fair who, who is mega he's which is kind of you know, he's, he's an inspiring presence and he's really kind of living up yeah, to it. Well, it literally is an inspiring presence. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> the rules. Uh, the cheat code for Stormcast models, uh, for heroes in particular, is to have a, find a rock, uh, and put one foot on it and then take the, the limb opposite from, from, uh, the foot on the rock. So the, the, the opposite arm hmm. lift up, holding a weapon, uh, everything. They're all, they're all like that. Yeah. Even the, even the Lord Celestine on Drakoth. Who admittedly has four feet because of the Drakoth. One of them is on a rock. Got to do it. Yeah, it's, it's dynamic. It's like uh, my new sorcerer lord is standing entirely on a rock, which yeah. I just decided he was doing, but it feels like he doesn't quite get it because he's holding both of his arms up and yeah. he's standing fully on a rock. <laughs> like doing it wrong. <laughs> exactly. Just to take a tip from the Zoncast. Yeah. I mean, it's only because he's shorter than they are. So yeah, he has, maybe to, that's he has it. to fully stand on a rock. Because it's got a kind of um, 
inferiority complex. Yeah, and whereas the uh, the Khorne Slaughter Priest I did, who is fucking massive, mm, he is he, he's got one arm on, he's got one foot on a rock, and he's rocking it. Absolutely, he's learned. It's yeah, it's the the secret fashion of of Warhammer dudes is yeah, pet skulls, Absolutely. pouches, one foot on a rock, job done, you're done. Yeah. Um, the other thing I think I've maybe learned painting wise recently, um, it'd be good if we could share like a tip a month or something like that. That'd be maybe. So that's something we've learned. Maybe. Yeah. Something we learned. The other thing I, so something I've come back to recently is I'm now less afraid of dry brushing. Oh yeah. Um, so, um, Pip, my partner, um, who you all know from the Crane Crowbar, um, kindly got me like a set of Citadel dry brushes for Christmas mm. and they're fucking awesome. Yeah. They're good. Like, one of them's so huge. I'll, I only use it for bases really, but like, um, but they, they, they held together really nicely. They're, they're really nice brushes and, but dry brushing, which is the technique of getting a very, very tiny amount of paint on a draw on a dry brush mm. and drawing it over a model. So it, it brings out highlights. It's not, I don't think anyone actually really frowns on it. But like I internally frown on it because I associated it with me, aged thirteen, right. thinking Chaos Warriors. I know how to paint these. It's speed painting, isn't it? It's what you yeah. do if you really want to get an army out fast. Yeah. yeah, Necrons. I know how to do these. Oh god, yeah. Spray them black. Dry brush them silver. You have finished. Um, and so like, uh, and it, it creates some textures that I don't want. So you know, for example, like, um, dry brushing tends to create a dry look. It's amazing if you're painting wood mm, or definitely. or something that is intended to look more bone, like old bone. Like, um, that's supposed to look musty, good for skeletons. It can look mottled, basically. Yeah. Um, and, but also if you can, it, it can leave behind little paint flecks and little, like, particular granules of yeah, paint, yeah. paint, which can be brushed off after kind the of fact. Dust, yeah. But yeah, it looks dusty. It makes something look dusty and old. And, um, actually credit to, um, I think on, recently on Warhammer TV, which is the, the Twitch stuff they do, um, uh, Duncan Rhodes, who's everyone loves as their with Warhammer TV's painting man, yeah. pointed out that actually you can use dry brushing as a guide for later, quote unquote, proper highlighting. And I found that really useful advice, actually. Like, yeah, it can, sure. so when I went to do my, um, Chaos Sorcerer Lord, uh, again, there will be pictures of these things in the show notes. And if you're watching the YouTube version, there will be pictures, hopefully, as you've been watching this. <laughs> um, uh, again, because I'm an idiot, a billion sub-assemblies. So he was done in four parts and his head was base-coated in an entirely separate color to the rest of his body. Um, and I sprayed his f- head black because I knew I wanted, like, this look of a, a, a gaunt, withered, ancient face that was somehow kind of, like, connected to some kind of, like, celestial magic, somehow mutated by the strange knowledge of the magical music of God knows the fuck what. Yeah. Um, so I sprayed it black and then did, like, very light successive dry brushes with very gray and brown kind of shades until I knew roughly where like the kind of the, the pointiest bits of his cheekbones and his sort of stubby weird chaos nose and his eyebrow bits and his kind of ear stubs were going to be. Yeah. And the kind of the base of his horns. Cause I knew I wanted his horns to stretch into a kind of bluey purple gradient, but the, and then as soon as I did that it actually looked right. Like it, it looked like, okay, well this is the kind of, super graying skin and then all, all it took was a very light watered down highlight with a very fine brush of those same colors again on the kind of the pointiest bits yeah. to kind of pull his his face out to a point where i was really happy with it mm. and i don't think i would have gotten there as quickly or as subtly honestly if i had 
edge highlighted traditionally in the way that I see as I would have seen as like the right way to do it, mm. the kind of the, the the hard way to do it. Um, and so yeah, it's maybe a little bit less. It, it's made me less dismissive of and afraid of dry brushing when the time is right. To the extent that I think I'm going to use it on my um, Lord of Change. You know, maybe next month I'll have that to report back on. But like, yeah, he is a big feathery dude. And yeah. guess what? Feathers are kind of dry and really good for that edge. You know, they have lots of edges. They're all edges. So hmm. maybe dry brushing the first couple of passes on them is the right thing to do. Yeah, and I think maybe a couple of months ago I would have, when I was knee deep in pink horrors and painting just pink flesh all day, I would never have considered dry brushing as going as working. But actually, I think it looks good when you, it has its place. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've used it on, uh, I use it on dry cloth skin. Yeah. And then go in afterwards and kind of do. Yeah. And I guess for, for dry reptilian scales it's and stuff, it's a good stuff. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I think it's just the technique for the material, isn't it? It's, uh, it's interesting learning more about that as, as practice it. Cool. I'm just going to keep painting green fire on things. Oh yeah. And trying not to make it look like a cabbage, which is the thing I found looks <laughs> is the problem with green fire. <laughs> I've, uh, I'm going to, my next project is start the Celestine Prime, mm. uh, which is the mother of all gradients. If I'm going to do that kind of swirly. He's surrounded effect. by a kind of orrery of space magic. Which it looks incredible if you get it right. Yeah. But I'm going to have to figure but out. But it looks like it. dick if you get it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting one. That. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to do Thousand Suns and then I'm going to paint a bajillion Sangor and that is going to be gold trim till I die. <laughs> to the point oh, that I've definitely gone back, like check back next month to figure out if I've made a, f- a fucking lifetime error because when i painted the zangor for the silver tower set i literally wrote on my painting blog if they ever release standalone zinc jarkonites and zangor are a thing of them i think i will avoid the zangor because they're such a pain in the ass to paint <laughs> yeah and yet and yet there's there's 26 zangor two, two boxes right there. yeah 26 zangor under hero so that'll oh, be yeah. and i did six before and that took me six weeks no, three weeks. It's going to be three weeks. I look forward to fighting them in a year's time. <laughs> okay. No, I'm, I, I'm going to, I've improved. It's fine. I can do this. It's all right. <laughs> it's not like they are, I mean, they're, they're going to be a bit of a nightmare because there is an insane amount of detail on those models mm. for what are essentially a line unit yeah, and a sure. horde unit. Got like they are avian men, uh, women, you wouldn't be able to tell kind of twisted mutated humans with beaks, horns, feathers, Teeth, glowing eyes, feather stumps, claws, um, and then armor with intensely filigreed gold trim. What I, you know, will plan to do is a sort of turquoise interior cloth with a gradient and a fucking billion accessories from daggers to pouches to necklaces to beads to gemstones to everything else. And then their weapons and their gear and everything else. Mm. So, you know, compared to almost any other line unit in the game, they're each a little hero model, the basically. One of the most ornate, surely. Yeah, they, 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 really. they're nuts. They're, they're, they're Baroque as shit. Mm. They look and amazing, though. They will look amazing. Like, that's, that's the payoff, is when they're done, um, they'll look great. And one of the reasons that I'm planning to point so many buff spells and protective spells and shields at them is so they don't all die immediately. Um, but speaking of Zango dying immediately, <laughs> <laughs> shall we talk about what we've been playing? Yeah, we played a game just today. Yeah, we did. That was interesting. So um, this was our first game um, in Age of Sigma since the release of the Disciples of Zinch book, which added loads of new rules for Zinch, including Destiny Dice, which you roll at the beginning of the game. And it's a pool of nine dice because nine is a magic number for Zinch. 
And at any point in the game, you can kind of say, rather than roll this dice to determine this effect, I'm going to use one of my destiny dice of the correct result to kind of steer things. And we chose a, a scenario from the Disciples of Sinch book, which is about a, a cult rising up in a, in a civilization and facing the inhabitants of that place. But I guess we put our own spin on that um, scenario in that it was a cult rising up, but assisted by, you know, or insisted or encouraged by kind of my demonic host and also my existing kind of Sangor Arcanite ancient warband. Yeah. So we kind of imagined they'd walked into this, well, not walked into this place. They'd kind of fostered this cult and now was the time to strike. And they weren't being put down by the inhabitants of that place necessarily mm. so much as those bloody kids, <laughs> um, you know, would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for those meddling stormcasts to the, come down from space yep. to ruin Christmas. Um, and so, yeah, so the, the, given that we've played a couple of games now, this, this felt like the first time that the, the setup of our respective armies felt quite so important, particularly given that, um, this is one of the scenarios that doesn't have like a fixed objective on the board. Instead, you scored points by killing my units and heroes and different amounts of points for each. And I scored points according to the whim of Zinch. So I would roll a dice at the beginning of each phase and that would tell me what Zinch wanted me to do that turn, which might be casting spells and it might be killing dudes and it might be killing nine dudes, which is again, Zinch's magic number. Mm. But yeah, that first, that deployment, given that we were playing on like the narrow edge of the board and we were, we were going to start the game right in each other's faces. It felt like there was a lot of game to that initial me then you then me then you placement yeah of of units it's really interesting because um i've got some key units well obviously both forces do but um the fulminators who are the dracoth riders um are just extremely serious they're really expensive because they absolutely wreck stuff in the right circumstances um and i've also got a knight venator who's a flying sniper basically with a a, a star eagle turns out he has an eagle (laughs) that eagle is awesome Uh, and uh, he has a 30 inch range and a terrifying ability to loose a star fated arrow once in a game which against a hero or a monster does d6 plus 3 wounds which is massive it's basically dead Yeah, could just wipe a hero in one shot and uh, it has no effect when I've uh, played my friend Chimp and he was uh, playing Iron Jaws I one shotted his his war boss right off the table <laughs> and he was he was sad before he crushed me completely the next time uh so it was interesting placing that guy because basically this is a big 30 inch bubble where chris kind of doesn't want to put his important heroes in that bubble so set him up in the right hand side and kind of froze off that side of the table ended up isolating kind of uh the ogroid thaumaturge who's the minotaur and the zangors on that flank and I ended up putting the formulators on that flank with my general, who was also on Drakoth, to create a kind of shock troop in that side. Yeah. Very like, interesting. I was sort of interested in, like, so we, one of the things that created kind of like an interesting strategic dimension in that game was, um, the three key terrain pieces we had. Oh, yeah. And the, I got to place them as part of the scenario. One of them is, is called the Numinous Oculum. And it's like, a, again, a kind of like a magic orrery thing, mm-hmm. which is, gives a boon to spellcasting. So I placed it pretty centrally and also, place my general who's the new sorcerer lord inside it yeah like to gain the benefit from that um the 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 dais which 
uh, which is one of the other ones would be kind of useful to either of us, but wasn't kind of game changing. So I put it off to one side. And the other thing was a thing called the Mage Wrath Throne. Oh, yes. Which basically did no, me no favors whatsoever. But if any of your heroes managed to sit on this big chair, suddenly there would be a 30 inch bubble where spellcasting was much harder. So I knew I couldn't let you get anywhere near that chair. Yeah. And, but I had to place it in my own side of the board. So I placed it where ideally I knew I was going to want to put my uh, Gaunt Summoner, who is this sort of spindly Zinchian magic genie. Uh, because as you know, I am always going to want him to be riding around on top of a vortex. Indeed. And it's, I can't summon that vortex until the first turn, but when I do, no unit can enter within three inches of the vortex. Mm. So my idea straight away was to create to put the the gaunt summoner on top of the vortex right next to the magic anti-magic chair so you can't go anywhere near it yeah and while the the summoner is up on that vortex i know you can't engage him in in melee combat Mm. and i know that you know that and i know that you know that you're gonna have to shoot him off that yeah and who's really good at shooting heroes (laughs) but eagle pal eagle eagle man eagle friend and his magical bow so i i given that you deploy units and take turns to deploy units there was a that back and forth on like i was waiting to see where you were going to put the venator yeah because as soon as you put the venator down i knew whether or not the blocking chair with magic whirlwind was the play yeah and it turned out it was the play Mm. um but actually like i came out of that deployment happy with how it worked out. Like I had my massive, I had my general where I wanted him. I had my massive block of uh, pink horrors facing your center line to bog them down. Um, my, my Ogroid and the Sangors where I wanted them, even though they were facing down the Celestin, Andre Koth and the Fulminators. Mm. And I had, uh, and then on the other flank, I had uh, screamers of Zinch, which are like the flying demon manta rays and my acolytes, and flamers, which are a really powerful shooting unit, kind of ready to either break your weaker left flank or close in on your strong middle. Yeah. So beginning of the game, I was relatively happy. I don't know how you felt. I felt pretty good because a lot of your heroes were exposed mm. um, and I knew I could get into combat with them, which is the main thing. So I was scoring points, three points, victory points for a hero down and uh, Zeech has lots of heroes and they're not very um durable so um i always knew i was gonna have to shoot off the gaunt summoner at some point uh but racking up points on the smaller heroes was also like a a bigger priority almost Mm. um so i was very pleased to have the formulators and the uh lord celestial dracoth on the flank in a um, in pretty much the matchup i wanted i didn't want them going into the pink horrors and getting swamped i didn't want them going into the screamers and getting swamped um, I wanted them fighting your tough stuff and hopefully wiping it out quite quickly, yeah. which as it turns out is what happened. So, yeah. So um, I, as the, based on the rules of the scenario, I got to choose who took the first turn mm. and I gave it to myself because, because we were fighting across the narrow board edge and I deployed quite far forward. Like as a Zinch player, like all of my action takes place during the hero phase, which is when spells are cast and during the shooting phase, really. Mm. Like that's when I do my real damage. Yeah, sure. Um, and then combat, with the exception of a few units, and hopefully some more when I have my new stuff in play, is a bit of an afterthought. Except that it allows me to slow people down mm. for the next round of shooting and magic. Um, because I know you will kick my ass in the combat phase, right? Like, that's what has happened in every single game. What Stormcast do. Yeah. Um, and so, but, and so I gave myself the first, um, 
the first hero phase because so normally i might give you the first turn so you're forced to walk into me mm. so that i don't have to move to shoot you basically um but we started so close together that it was like i need this first turn to, to do some serious damage however i then had a complete shocker <laughs> yeah really and, and 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 you know we, you know this is supposed to be a five round scenario it took us two <laughs> um and one of the reasons that that was kind of interesting but it was ultimately a strategic thing on my part is so um with destiny dice that allow me to fix the result of certain rolls based on that roll i make at the beginning of the game i can guarantee certain amounts of damage if the spells go off um and so my plan was to kind of crush your celestin and your fulminators Mm. and crush your celestin and bog down your fulminators your your dracoth riders before the game had even really started yeah thinking i will probably lose the thaumaturge and the sangor but you're going to pay for it more yeah. dearly than I will. Absolutely. And that'll buy time for the rest of my line. And that relied on two things happening. One was because we, um, so this was the first game as well where we, we went all in on the narrative thing. We actually, we rolled on tables to determine what command traits and artifacts we had. Hmm. So it was nothing to do, you know, you, you're allowed to pick them if you want to play a game slightly differently and you want to not power game it, but strategize around specific archetypes and spells. Uh, we decided to roll. And based on the roll, I knew that my Herald of Zinch on a disc had a really good damaging spell. And my Thaumaturge had the spell I really wanted him to have, which is called Treacherous Bond, which means that he can create a link with another nearby unit. And when he takes wounds, he can instead pass them on to that other unit. So they die on, instead, instead of him. And so, um, and so I, and I also had, uh, so I tried, uh, tried to cast that damaging spell with the Herald and failed, mm. um, which was, you know, unlucky. And then, um, I knew how important the, um, that, that link was going to be to ensuring that the Thalmatorish survived that combat with the Celestin. So I used the artifact that he'd been randomly given, which allowed him to roll three, three dice to cast a spell rather than two. Yeah. So I had to beat six. I had to beat the value of six on three dice. And I rolled two ones and a two. Yeah, damn. Which actually, that was the game almost. Mm. Like, it, well, not maybe not entirely, but like, so I what? I think it, the retributors would have smashed him later. Possibly, but mm. it depend, It would have been interesting to see how much damage you would have taken. Yeah. Because, um, what subsequently happened on that flank is, um, I still charged. I ended up doing one total damage to your Lord Celestin yeah. with the Sangor and the Ogre Thaumaturge. And that was only because of the charge. Mm. And in return, I lost all of it. <laughs> Whereas had I had that had, had both of those spells gone off, you would have lost your Celestant and the Thaumaturge would have been untouched because all those wounds have been transferred to the Pink Horrors who regenerate them would have probably re- regenerated them anyway. Yeah. So that was a fucking disaster. And I think my mistake was on that side that I, as soon as that failed so dramatically, it should have changed my entire game plan. Right. Like I should have just backed off mm. and gone, okay, well, magic says no, so I'm not doing this. I'm not going to commit to it. And then the unlucky thing was on the other flank. Um, so the Gaunt Summoner can cast two spells. And the first one was going to be to, you know, cast the Vortex and, and bring himself up. Uh, and that, when that's successful, that doesn't count towards your total spells. So I can cast two more. And he has amazing damage spells. And I'd gotten quite lucky with his spell rolls. So he had two phenomenal sort of error of effect damage spells. Yeah. And a double casting range from the Vortex. So I can hit you anywhere on the board. And both rolls failed, even with plus two or three to cast. Mm. And so 
having then failed to cast, um, I did, I did get some other spells off, but sort of four of my seven total spell casts that turn failed. Yeah. Um, and my victory condition for that turn was to cast spells. So I got three points for the turn total. Could have gotten a, a lot more. Mm. Um, but what that meant is even, but then the stupid thing I guess I did was I committed to the charge anyway. Like, fuck it. Magic's not happening. I don't think you have much of a choice though. Because Let's try fighting. Yeah. You didn't, you didn't want to get charged by the Fulminators because the, the Dracoth cavalry, um, they do three times as much damage if they, in, in the turn they charge. So, and they would have caught you as well because they're, fast yeah and they were within range of my hornblower who could have done the run charge buff on them so either way they were getting hit with the fulminators um yeah. so I, th- I don't think you had a huge amount of choice in it so yeah and so i guess your that yeah, the rest of my turn for you is relatively straightforward because you were just attacking with your stuff in combat yeah. and i lost all a lot i lost all of the acolytes all of the zangor the ogre thormaturge <laughs> yeah all of the almost all of the horrors mm. And a bunch of other stuff. So then it was your turn. And there was a couple of combats already on the board. But I guess that's when you got to enact big men from space. Right? Yeah, which is what the Stormcast do so well. Um, so in Age of Sigma, you have battalions, uh, which are kind of special rules that are attached to certain group formations, if you like. So uh, I took one, which was two units of Retributors, who are the huge paladins with massive uh, hammers who are rightly feared throughout the <laughs> mortal realms because they do ridiculous amounts of damage and they're really tough um so two units of those and um a unit of flying guys called prosecutors just three of those uh, and this formation basically lets me keep my uh, retributive paladins in space and until a movement phase where i choose to put them down and they can go down within six inches of these flying guys who are on the battlefield and the amazing way that rule works is that you could put them down straight into combat uh, as long as they're within six inches of the prosecutors. So the prosecutors flew like diagonally across the table, just right, just threaded a needle between two of Chris's units and then bosh, bosh, two units into combat directly with two separate, uh, with the flamers and with the pink horrors. And they absolutely wrecked. Yeah. They just, um, the stars on maces they've got, which are these special weapons that you just roll a dice and it's D3 mortal wounds straight up and then they get to attack and they're you know i've got very lucky with this game because a lot of stormcast stuff explodes on the sixes yeah and i got that a lot yeah <laughs> which is that, that i mean that was kind of what happened to the ogre town with the zangor yeah there was like four or five different explosions yeah it was crazy because the um <laughs> his lightning hammer explodes and uh i think it did so and then Dracoth, if he rolls sixes to wound, it does like huge amounts of damage potentially, which also happened. So the Dracoth exploded. <laughs> and, uh, it was just like, it was, it was a very stormcasty thing to happen, but, uh, very unlucky on your part for sure. Um, and then so that turn wiped out the, um, so that was the, your half of the first turn wiped out the, the flamers were gone. The pig horrors were pretty much dead. You also shot my general to death through the ocular oh yeah yeah i've got a lot of shooting in my army now which is one thing i lacked uh so actually i think my did my general spit him no my, so yeah what yeah. happened so you shot at him with the venator but not yeah. but not the fated arrow not the once again mega arrow <laughs> no. and missed mm. but i had to spend a destiny dice to ensure that you missed like it's right. not my destiny to die here today but i didn't realize that fucking eagle can <laughs> yes, fly eagle. 30 inches yes and eat someone's face off and it, it did so very effectively in this and game. so that that took him to, to one 
wound remaining, at which point your general's Dracoth spat lightning at him from across the way. Yeah, and that was the end of him. And that was the end of him for, for now. Yes. Um, I, you know, he vanished in a flash of light, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this is a huge problem for me because I need my spellcasters because I can resummon demons but only if I have spellcasters on the board. Yeah. Um, and so I was, I mean, I was like, I mean, pun not intended, completely decimated by the end of your turn. Mm. I did win, like, if I hadn't won initiative for the second round, yeah, I'd have been dead, absolutely gone. Mm. And it would have, it would have been a one, almost a one round victory for you. Mm. Um, I did get initiative. Um, but then the, the, it was probably the, the key thing, right? The reason, like, this is the first battle that you've had the Veritant, which is the anti-magic stormcast. Yes. And so my plan was, uh, cause I also lost the Herald that turned to the Fulminators. Oh, like, yeah. yeah. They ate him. Yeah. They, they ate him. Um, so the plan was use the Gaunt Summoner to summon Herald, then use the Gaunt Summoner's other spell to do some damage like desperately need mm. to do. Then use the Herald to summon some pink horrors. And then use some pink horrors to summon some flamers. Yeah. Because they can, they can, you know, demons can do that. They just chain spell each other. For sure. You know? Um, but I, 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 and I successfully summoned the herald, but I rolled quite low. Yeah. And you saw the window to dispel that with the veritant mm. and did so. And that, that was effed it completely. <laughs> yeah. Because then I had to, then I had to use the gaunt summon a second spell to cast, to summon the pink horrors. At which point he doesn't get to do any magic, sure. uh, other magic. Pink Horus summoned the Flamers. The Flamers shot and killed, you know, two Paladins, which yeah. is not terrible. But then it was the Gaunt Summoner, the Screamers, and two, um, you know, Pink, Pink Horus and some Flamers versus everything. Mm. I mean, we've even skipped the bit where the, the Lord Veritant's Griffhound, his little bird <laughs> oh, yeah. dog, killed three, three men and yeah. the rest ran away. That was amazing. Um, but yeah, and then, so that was kind of my turn. And then you, obliterated it yeah i think by that point it was pretty much over <laughs> yeah. because you, you just didn't have the uh bandwidth to get more troops onto the field like my my objective had changed at that point due to the shifting will of zinch etc etc to being killing you which is actually the best one i could have gotten yeah because there's yeah. a lot of stuff to kill mm. but i needed you not to kill everything of mine <laughs> no, <laughs> which is what then happened um my venator flew across and loosed off a, a starfighter's arrow which missed totally missed <laughs> yeah. um so he, he's 50 i felt really confident after that happened like you know what fate is my thing but uh you know just behind the bolt was the star eagle which <laughs> did get more damage <laughs> uh, and then um i think the one of the other problems you had was that you never you didn't quite wipe out any of my units yeah. so uh there was one that adjudicator is an archer basically for the stormcast and basically the only guy in the unit who matters because he has a special uh a special bow and arrow that does d6 wound rolls yeah it does and uh yeah that that was the end of your god summoner yeah as soon as the summoner was dead i was basically fucked. that was it wasn't it um then i suppose the, the most notable so yeah lost the pink horrors to the um I lost the pink horrors to the paladins. Mm. The veritant went fucking berserk. <laughs> it's, it's actually one of the better, slightly one of the better um, stormcast heroes. Also, it, he had an artifact which gave him extra rend. Yeah, which is always useful. But he killed three screamers in one go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have three wounds each. He ran over there. He ran really far as well. Like he booked it <laughs> he across ran. the table. His, his griffhound could barely keep up with it. Yeah. Like he was running faster than a wild, you know, animal on four legs. Uh, and he went, he just promptly completely uh, obliterated. like 11 wounds to them. Completely crazy, it was, it was crazy nuts. Damage. I think he's damaged two on that sword, which is really, really good. Yeah. 
So that was yeah. silly. He, he bailed out the libs. The lib, I, I love liberators. They always just stick around. Uh, yeah. Apart from that one game where they got completely shot off in turn one. And then, um, and then, yeah. So then all I had left on the board was two flamers. Mm. Um, and we rolled for the, the initiative on the turn <laughs> and you got it. Yeah. So you'd have one turn all to yourself to kill two flamers. Two flamers. And so we, we did much. call it at that point. And the yes. result was 23 points to the Stormcast. <laughs> three points to the forces of darkness. I think that's the, that's the thing about Zinch when it collapses. It collapses. Really hard. fucking collapses. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. completely. Um, there's a great sort of fictional get out in the clause, which is that Zinch only loses when it suits his broader plan to lose. Of course. Yeah. Um, which I'm going with. That's I what you would say, obviously. But, yeah. but that was, that was definitely the most one-sided loss. It was. But yeah. I think this is, that's the loss that says to the powers that be that maybe we need to deploy a giant bird man. <laughs> yeah. Deploy the bird. Yeah, exactly. Deploy the other birds. I'm getting more birds. Stop Everyone's us. getting more birds. Yeah, next. Birds next. everywhere. Uh, feathers are the new skulls. Yeah. For for Warhammer. But yeah, it's interesting. And it, even though it was so one-sided, it, well, it turned out to be so one-sided, it was actually strategically interesting, again, to realise how I needed to change my game plan when the magic didn't come off because I was so confident. Yeah. Because this was my first game going in with the new book full of spells and having all I, this I, new toys to play with. I was expecting to get completely wrecked today. Yeah. Like when I woke up, I was like, I'm going to get... It's hard to go to Chris's to get <laughs> destroyed by New Zinch. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know... It no, work it turns out when none of those spells go off. Yeah. You're, you're just a bunch bones. of... <laughs> yeah. It turns out wizards that can't cast spells are, are just <laughs> are useless against big men with hammers. Uh, yeah. As it ever was. The story is old as time. <laughs> Beauty and the beast. <laughs> so that's generally been our, our month in, in hobby stuff, I guess. Indeed. So yeah, and I think that's probably given, given how long we've been recording about our month in, in hobby podcast mm. as well. So yeah, this was a, this was a, a first go at having a chat about the tiny men with paint and the little stories we tell ourselves with them. Um, we plan to do this every month going forward, along with some other Crate and Crowbar spin-off stuff we have in the the pipeline. And hopefully, if you if you're into 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 Warhammer or miniatures in general, you've enjoyed this. But this is totally a work in progress for us, and it's kind of interesting how different it feels to doing <laughs> CNC every week. Um, if there's something you'd like specifically to hear about, whether that's like more game stuff or more painting stuff or more story stuff, that'd be interesting to know um so let us know uh there's a, a channel on our discord channel which we'll put in the in the show notes and is on the crate and crowbar website uh called table talk where you can discuss this stuff and, and maybe it might make sense for us to create a, a channel for for questions for this podcast if you'd like to ask ask us questions for this podcast um you can email the same old address which is questions at crate and crowbar.com to, to you know in some way, if you could stick something to do with the miniatures podcast in your title or subject line so that we know that it's for this, but it should probably be obvious. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll shift the, 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 the podcast around to kind of match what, what you guys are interested in, I think. For sure. Um, obviously, you know, like I know I would like to, to, I, I got, I got things to say about tiny plastic spaceships, Tom and X-Wing. For sure. This, this, this maybe didn't feel like the time because we've got. A lot to say about tiny golden men. They're the best. They are the best. Well, they're they're apparently the, they are the best. Yeah, demonstrably the best. <laughs> they're demonstrably the best. Um, so we may we may visit uh, you know other games and X wings and, th- and X X wings X wing uh, occasionally as well. But as we figure out kind of like what's fun and what we enjoy, your suggestions are obviously super helpful. So do get in touch. Otherwise, we'll be back next month. 
at date to be determined based on when this goes up and and when we can sort things out but we'll we'll, we'll aim to establish a week of the month that we put this podcast out in um with basically more on our ongoing kind of hobby experience more games that we've played more painting things that we've kind of determined and discovered more story stuff that we've we've figured out and yeah and hopefully maybe even answer some of your questions and possibly even some of our questions <laughs> like when am i going to stop losing <laughs> i think that lord of change might do it for you maybe but i'll to. have the prime so we'll see yeah you get a big man to drop from space and i get big bird mm. we'll see how that matchup <laughs> balances out but yeah so thank you for listening i hope you've enjoyed this first foray into tiny plastic people pods Thanks, Thanks for, for listening, listening everybody. everybody. We didn't do our Twitters, Tom. We didn't. Should we do them now? Yes. Okay. So that was the, <laughs> that was the first rogue. Thanks for listening. <laughs> um, Any time. Wow. Someone probably just switched off, not realizing the Twitter gold they're about to Absolutely. receive. So yeah, we actually. So my um, I, I'm Chris Thurston. I'm on Twitter at c Thurston, and uh, my kind of painting Instagram is uh, Instagram.com forward slash exit warp which is E-X-I-T-W-A-R-P. Lovely. My name's Tom Senior. I'm on Twitter at PCGLudo, which is L-U-D-O. I don't have a painting blog yet, but you never know. You probably should, Tom. I should actually, really. It's Most pretty easy to do. Yeah, for sure. And uh, and miniatures painting social media is lovely. It is really nice, actually. Yeah, yeah. coming from games. It's a lovely break <laughs> from... Uh, Just happy uh, people sharing things they're proud of yeah, and sure. being supportive. Nice. Um, And so, yeah, that's us. Uh, once again thanks for listening <laughs> everybody <laughs>